Chapter 17 0905 Hours, October 12, 2559, Military Calendar Landing Zone Bella, New Mohatch, Arany Basin, Continent Epos, Planet Reach The rain had stopped hours before all the fires were out, so a steady pall of smoke continued to blow over the small courtyard where Blue Team had established Landing Zone Bella. John and the rest of the Spartans were standing behind the D-77H TCI Pelican that would soon carry them to Castle Base. Special crew had already pulled the rearmost seats out of the troop bay and made some other modifications to accommodate the excavation equipment and other cargo. Now, under Crew Chief Mukai's watchful eye, they were finally securing the drilling jumbo and LHD in place at the back of the deck. John was eager to get moving, but didn't dare set foot on the loading ramp until he received Mukai's permission to board. A portable Spartan support module had landed with the fourth drop, so he and Kelly had spent some of their downtime having the damage to their armor repaired. They had even had their half-healed wounds cleaned and field-mended. John's quadriceps hurt worse than ever, but the vat-grown myosin mesh that had been grafted onto the damaged muscle would prevent the injury from degrading his fighting performance any more than it already had. Kelly, meanwhile, was no longer at any risk of reopening her axillary vein and seemed more irritated by the fresh sutures itching under her armor than by the wound itself. Fred would simply have to live with his dented helmet for now. With their integrated communications, HUDs, and neural interfaces, Mjolnir helmets were too complicated to risk repairing in the field except under the direst of circumstances. Mukai poked her head out between the LHD and the drilling jumbo. Ready in ten, Master Chief, she said. Palmer find any keepers yet? Not that I've heard about. After the banished had been pushed back out of New Mohatch, John had noticed that all the enemy armor was either crimson or black trimmed in silver. He had not seen a single attacker wearing the colors of the Keepers of the One Freedom, blue and gold and that had given him real pause. The Keepers had started this war by downing Blue Team's Owl, then tracked them halfway across the Arany Basin, only to disappear when the real fighting started? Something didn't make sense, so he had asked Palmer to send out an intelligence team to look for the Keeper colors. She'd acted on his request almost two hours ago, and there had not been a single report so far. We could be in for another bumpy ride, John added. Better double-secure that equipment. Major Von Hout peered over the top of the drilling jumbo. This is why it's taking so long to prep, he said. Chief Mukai is making us triple-secure everything already. To do better, we'd have to weld it to the deck. Don't give her any ideas, Lieutenant Chapoff called out. He was somewhere behind the LHD, clattering away ferociously as he tensioned a tie-down chain. He had been working a little too hard since learning of Bella Distel's death and it was he who had suggested naming the landing zone in her honor. Chief Mukai thinks it's her fault D-rings can't take 10G decelerations. I should have upgraded to titanium, Mukai said. You can have them custom. A raid alert sounded over their helmet comms, echoed by a whooping siren that rang out over the entire village. Nobody scrambled for cover. The banished had been probing New Mohatch's air defenses regularly for the last two hours trying to draw out the small deterrent force of broadswords that had been left to protect the village while the rest of the wing returned to the infinity to rearm and refill propellant tanks. 
but so far no attack had come. The probes were pure harassment, designed to lull the defenders into a false sense of security and make the UNSC waste propellant and ordnance. The enemy tactic was doomed to fail. Palmer was too disciplined a commander to allow her Spartan fours, or the ODSTs, to let down their guard, and the main body of the broadsword wing would soon be escorting eight big D-96 TCE albatrosses filled with deuterium propellant and plenty of ordnance into New Mohatch. But this time it wasn't a squadron of banshees or seraphs that had triggered the alarm. A banished intrusion corvette was dropping into view, its jagged bow still glowing with entry heat and trailing plumes of steam, its downhooked stern slicing through the dark clouds, almost seeming to drag the sky behind it. The corvette was probably 300 kilometers to the south of the bombed-out village, and it was traveling east to west, parallel to New Mohatch, rather than toward it. But John knew better than to take comfort in that. The old Jirulhanai intrusion corvettes were nimble vessels that could pivot their heading on a pinpoint. Major von Hout, you and Lieutenant Chapoff should prep for takeoff, now, John said. Blue team can help Chief Mukai finish securing the load. No, you can't. Mukai's head popped out from under the LHD. You won't fit under the equipment. We'll find a way. That sounds urgent. Von Hout slipped between the drilling jumbo and the bulkhead, then started aft toward the open hatchway. Are they coming for real this time? They're doing something. John continued to watch the intrusion corvette, still waiting for it to turn toward New Mohatch. I just don't know what. Three squadrons of broadswords, the entire deterrent force left to defend New Mohatch, rose into the sky over the old armor yard. After the battle earlier that morning, the strike fighters were hardly prepared for a skirmish with a ship of the line, even a small one. They were short on missiles and cannon ammunition, and they lacked enough deuterium propellant to reach orbit unassisted. But two of the squadrons shot off to meet the corvette as far south of the village as possible while one remained on station to defend against a second attack coming from another direction. The corvette continued westward, descending on a gentle glide path. Von Hout stopped at the bottom of the boarding ramp and followed John's gaze, looking out over the jagged ruins toward the gray southern horizon. We'll never beat them, you know. Von Hout's eyes were fixed on the enemy craft. They're still at Mach 6 or better. By the time we launch, they'll be there. Beware. John didn't wait for an answer, because no sooner had he asked the question than he understood what von Hout had seen, what any pilot would see. The corvette was traveling too fast to change course. It wasn't on approach to attack New Mohatch. It was descending into the Highland Mountains. Sarah Palmer's voice came over the insertion comms channel. Blue Leader, Liberation Command, I've been asked to relay an urgent message from Orbit Actual. That would be Captain Lasky, and the message was being relayed because Reach was still wrapped inside the Infinity's jamming blanket. I bet I can guess, John said. They think a banished stealth corvette slipped through the orbital picket. Close, Palmer said. They know a stealth corvette launched from a banished supercarrier. They didn't challenge it because they were afraid of drawing Cortana's attention. Kelly huffed into her comm set, and John answered by making a twirling gesture with his index finger. Load up. Acknowledged, John said. I'm going to need two broadsword squadrons. What? Sorry, John said, 
I'd like to request two broadsword squadrons immediately. Don't even let them land. Don't bother with the sweet talk, John, Palmer said. You're no good at it. Thanks for the advice, Commander. Does that mean I have my broadsword squadrons? It might, if I had some idea what you intend to do with them. Complete my mission. That intrusion corvette is landing in the Highland Mountains. So? My bet is it's on the way to meet the keepers of the One Freedom. And they've been waiting for us. 0920 hours. October 12th, 2559. Military calendar. Figuele Point. Bibor Cliffs. Highland Mountains. Continent Epos. Planet Reach. How Castor could have been so wrong, he did not understand. For three of Reach's day-night cycles, he had paced the crimson cliffs of the human-designated Figyelu Point, waiting for the demon Spartans to lead him to the portal under the mountain. It seemed inconceivable that they had inserted on Reach to deliver digging equipment to a group of farmers fighting to retake their meager holds. Yet for three days, the sensor dishes arrayed along the cliff rims had failed to detect any sign of the Spartans, and for three days his air patrols had returned with not a single sighting. Instead, the night before, Castor had watched the pinpoint flashes of battle somewhere far out in the Aranyi Basin. Then earlier this morning, the rain clouds had been striped by the flame trails of one insertion drop after another. He had finally broken his self-imposed calm silence and contacted Baulus, chieftain of the ravaged tusks, and learned of the human surprise attack on New Mohatch. Worse, Baulus had told him of the orbital jamming glove the UNSC had wrapped around Reach, and delivered a message from Escherum requiring a report on the search for the portal. And now an intrusion corvette was dropping out of the clouds, its bow shields still glowing red with entry heat. Castor did not even entertain the possibility that the vessel would divert and swing around to attack the humans at New Mohatch. It was coming straight at Figelu Point. Castor stopped pacing and spun toward the broken line of sandstone blocks they were using to camouflage the command post, then stepped over to the block he had come to think of as Gadagai's throne. As he had been for much of the last three days, the blademaster was kneeling atop the stone, his hands resting in his lap, his eyes closed, and his mandibles splaying ever so slightly each time he exhaled. Castor grabbed the block by the sides and spun it toward the cliff. Gadogai rode atop it, eyes still closed. Then, an instant before Castor launched the stone off the precipice, the blademaster simply stepped off and stood next to him, peering over the edge as the block plunged 200 meters and began to cut a swath through the carpet of saplings that covered the slope below. The tumbling block continued down the steep slope, encountering nothing sturdy enough to stop it, and flattening the saplings until it finally bounced into a ravine and vanished. Gadugai said, A splendid toss. I doubt Esherim could do better. Castor spun to face the Sangheili. Despite the chill wind and recent rain, the blademaster wore only his usual tabard and energy sword. You told Esherim where to find us. We weren't hiding from him. And now we're not hiding from anyone, Castor said. Every human in the basin will see where he lands. Gadugai spread his palms. He is starting to doubt that the Spartans are looking for the portal at all. When they retook their city of New Mohatch, 
there were reports of excavation equipment on the battlefield. How would you know that? Castor demanded. I banned communications. And Asheram commanded me to keep him informed. A pity your plan to follow the Spartans to the portal failed. He thought it cunning. Then he should have given it more time to work. He gave it more than three day-night cycles, Gadugai replied, and now the banished are on the verge of losing reach. Reach only matters if we find the portal, Castor said. The corvette had slowed to landing velocity and was beginning to descend toward Figulu Point, so he turned to the small shelter that the sensor operators had erected to protect their monitoring equipment. Send the humans to the caves at once. A moment later, four of the keeper's human acolytes emerged and looked in his direction. There were two males and two females, all of them with their heads shaved on the sides and narrow falls of hair hanging between their shoulder blades. All wore keeper colors, with blue torso armor over gold shirts and trousers, and all carried human sidearms on their hips. Castor was no judge of their species' appearance, but the smallest and oldest of the group, a female with black hair and brown eyes, seemed to be their leader. The others protected her as though she were a dokab and sometimes called her mom, a human bloodline colloquialism, even if they did not look young enough to be her offspring. But what did Castor know? When it came to humans, it was all he could do to tell the males from the females. When they stood staring at Eshram's incoming corvette a little too long, he waved them away. Go! I have enough to explain without reminding Eshram that I abide humans in my clan. They placed their palms together and bowed, then fled toward the hangar caves in the valley behind the cliffs. Why do you abide them? Gadugai asked. Humans are such faithless creatures. Not those four, Castor replied. They are a gift of the oracle. The oracle you have not heard from for a year? Gadugai's voice was mocking. That oracle? The oracle that was sent to show me the true path. Castor knew it was impossible to unnerve the blademaster, but he allowed a little menace to seep into his voice. Most banished believed the oracle to be a forerunner Ancilla, who had been captured by the infidel UNSC and turned to their purposes. But Castor knew better. She was more powerful than either the banished or the UNSC realized, for the oracle had spoken to him many times since her supposed capture. Beware how you speak of her. I can stomach only so much blasphemy, even from you. Gadugai clacked his mandibles, as he sometimes did when he was amused. Then we must do what we can to settle your stomach. Eshiram would be disappointed to find you already gone when he arrives. Eshiram's corvette was just gliding past a few hundred meters south of Figulu Point, so Castor chose to pretend he had not heard the Blademaster's threat. He watched as the vessel swung toward a relatively flat area between the rim of the cliff and the valley behind it. Once he was sure that was where the pilots intended to land, he summoned his warriors and went to receive the Banished's second in command. Castor had only two hundred warriors atop the cliff to line up behind him, but it would be enough. Unlike Sanghili, who positioned their warriors to honor arriving dignitaries, Jirohanai reception formations were meant to intimidate, or at least to show that one was unintimidated by the person arriving. 
Castor arranged his host in a battle wedge, with himself at the tip and Feodrus and Kralis behind him, to his right and left. As a presumed neutral, Gadugai stood a few paces off to his side, still within sword's reach, but too far away for Castor to reach with a gauntlet smash. The corvette settled onto its struts just fifty meters from Castor, so close that a wave of nausea and pain ran through him as his body reacted to gravity tides generated by its repulsor drives. The energy field in its hangar mouth sizzled out, then a column of Jirohanai in dark gray power armor poured out in triple file and formed a three-rank crescent so wide its horns extended past the base of Castor's own wedge formation. There were three hundred of them, all easily as large as Orson had been. They held shock rifles at port arms and wore short-handled gravity maces on their belts. Castor gnashed his tusks and made a show of signaling Feodrus to stand fast. Gadugai shuffled his feet and looked at the sky, but Castor ignored him. It wasn't the Sangheili he was trying to beard. The two hosts of warriors stood staring at each other for a full five minutes. Finally, the two center rows of the crescent formation neatly pivoted to face each other, creating a three-meter-wide aisle. A grizzled Jirulhanai in rugged gray armor with scarlet trim appeared at the far end and started forward, holding a huge gravity axe in one hand. Though not quite as tall as the giant warriors flanking him, he was broader in the shoulders than any, so large that, as he passed, his shoulders seemed to brush the torso armor of the escorts to both sides. Reaching the end of the aisle, he paused and seemed to stare across the intervening distance at Castor. It was an unusual thing to do, and Castor did not know what to make of it. Spread your hands to show they are empty, Gadugai said quietly. Otherwise he will bring his weapon with the singular intent to use it. The war chief is as old as I am, and he is not one for petty games of intimidation. Castor had no idea how old Gadugai was, but Sangheili lived far longer than Jirohanai. That could make Eshiram eighty or ninety years old, a remarkable age for such a legendary figure. Castor spread his hands. Eshiram dipped his head, perhaps in thanks, then passed his gravity axe to the warrior on his right and started across the space between them. Castor went forward to meet him, Gadugai falling in at his side. The Blademaster's energy sword still hung on his belt, but Eshram's escorts seemed to take no notice of it, perhaps because they knew that it made no difference whether Gadugai was armed. The Sangheili was either of no concern to Eshram because of their alliance, or just as deadly without need of a weapon. Eshram crossed fully half the distance between him and Castor, a gracious gesture no doubt meant to put Castor at ease. Castor began to watch Gadugai more closely, and when they reached Eshram, he stood at an angle so he could see them both. Castor touched his fist to his breast. You honor the keepers with your presence, he said. Had I known you were coming, I would have brought some prisoners for the proper welcoming games. Eshram brushed his fingers against his own breast, acknowledging Castor's salute without returning its honor. He had a weathered face with flaring nostrils, a heavy jaw, and a long gray beard hanging from his chin. His right eye was cloudy and white, the result of an injury that had left a deep scar descending from his right brow to his hollow cheek. His left eye was as red as human blood. 
Had we been in contact, Eshram said at last, you would have known I was coming. You had no trouble finding us, Castor shot a glance in Gadugai's direction. I understand the Blade Master has kept you informed of our efforts and of your lack of results, Eshram said. It may be time to give up waiting and return to more conventional methods, Dokab Castor. We are already employing conventional methods, War Chief, Castor replied. We have 2,000 keepers and 300 craft searching every hole under every mountain in the entire chain. We have aerial images of the mountain range as well. It is one of the largest on reach. If the portal truly is hidden under a mountain on this world, it would be here. Yet you have found nothing. Castor could not tell if Eshram said this out of frustration with the keepers or with the situation in general. The war chief's intimidating visage, so weathered by decades of battle, made him nearly impossible to read. That is not entirely true, great one, Gadugai said, much to Castor's surprise. He had not expected the cynical blade master to speak in his defense, or to address Eshram with such a fawning honorific. We found elderly humans and children hiding in some mining tunnels to the north. Thousands of them. Elderly humans and children? Eshram looked to Castor, who was just as mystified. I fail to understand the significance. As do I, Castor said, looking to Gadugai. We found them, but they have nothing to do with the portal. Gadugai spread his hands. I did not say they did. Only that we found them. And what did you do with them? Eshram asked. Nothing, Castor said. Slaying them would have meant pulling hundreds of keepers off the search, and guarding them would require even more. So you just left them where they were. We destroyed their communications devices first, Castor said. Of course, we also searched their tunnels to make sure the portal was not there. And we took some of their mails to use as guides, Gadugai added. But they have not been much use. Most do not know the mountains any better than we do, and they are so old that they tend to collapse as soon as we make them start climbing. Eshram glared at Gadugai. What difference does this make, Blademaster? Explain yourself. Certainly, War Chief, Gadugai said, as though his statement should have been plain to all. It is quite simple. These humans belong to the same tribe as the ones who have been harassing the Legion of the Corpse Moon and the Ravaged Tusks. The Dokab's thinking was that if the Demon Spartans failed to lead him to the portal, he would take this group of frail humans captive and use them as hostages to force the rest to leave this world. Then Deucalion and Baulus would no longer be compelled to devote their efforts to securing Reach and they would be free to join Castor in the search for the portal. Castor was stunned. Not only had Gadugai posed a logical rationale for the Keeper's reluctance to slaughter the helpless humans, he had also provided a fallback plan that was strategically brilliant and accurately pointed out the failure of the other chieftains to participate in the search for the portal. And the Sangheili had done this at the risk of his own favor in the eyes of Eshram and the Banished. And that was the most surprising thing of all to Castor. Eshiram looked back to Castor. 
Very well. We have run out of time, Dokab. He raised his hand eastward. I will summon the others. Lead us to these humans, and we shall end this now. Atriox has waited far too long to return. To return? Castor asked. I thought we were going to him on the Ark. You doubt me, Dokab? Eshram demanded. Did I not say that Atriox would come to us and provide transport to his location? He let his sentence trail off, then raised his hand and pointed eastward. What is that? Castor turned to look and saw the tiny dart shapes of well over twenty UNSC fighter craft racing in from the direction of New Mohatch. They were not approaching Figilu Point directly, but angling across Aranyi Basin toward the southwest portion of the Highland Mountains. That, war chief, is what we have been waiting for, Castor said. The enemy is heading into the mountains. Without bothering to excuse himself or explain further, Castor raced to the sensor shelter. Inside the dimly lit room, he found a trio of Kigyar operators squawking at their Sanghili supervisor, all pointing at the holographic display in the center of the room. The supervisor turned toward Castor. There is no need for concern, Dokab, he said. They are not coming toward. I could see that from outside. Castor pushed him aside, then stepped up to the holograph. Roughly a meter in length, it showed an image of almost the entire Highland Mountain Range. He saw 24 identical arrow symbols swarming around a single box symbol, their pace increasing as they moved toward the mountains. What am I looking at? Two talons of human utility fighters, a Kigyar operator answered, escorting one of their... Heavy footfalls sounded at the door behind Castor, and the Kigyar fell silent as Gadugai and Eshram entered. No doubt they did not expect to see the banished war chief himself in their monitoring shelter. One of their what? Castor demanded. The Kigyar looked back to his screen. Apologies, Dokab. One of their dropships. And this dropship? Eshram asked. It is large enough to carry digging machines. Small ones, yes. Castor was already running his eyes along the flight's course. Show me the terrain along the projected flight path, he said, from the time it crosses over the mountains until it leaves. The Kigyar ran his fingers through a few light bars and pressed a couple of pressure pads on the emitter base. An image of a dotted line crossing over some very rugged mountain terrain appeared in the projection, and Castor knew as soon as he saw it where the dropship was headed. He faced the Sanghili post commander. Send everything we have after that human vessel. Shoot it down, now. What? The post commander gasped. Is this not what you have been waiting for, Dokab? For the demons to lead us to the portal? They just did, Castor said. He pointed to where the projected flight path crossed a flat circle surrounded by a ring of high, craggy peaks. We need no further confirmation. The reason we have not found it until now is clear. The portal was not under a mountain, not at all. What do you mean by this, Dokab? Eshram's tone had grown less menacing, perhaps even respectful. Show me. What I mean, war chief, is that the portal is there. 
Castor pushed his finger into the holograph, placing it atop the flat circle. Under the missing mountain. Chapter 18 0932 hours, October 12th, 2559, military calendar. Vigtelen Massash, Del Iliri, Aranyi Basin, Continent Epos, Planet Reach. Six days into Operation Wolf, and Blue Team was right back where it had started, strapped into a dropship troop bay on the way to Castle Base, crossing Aranyi Basin with a horde of enemy fighters vectoring in to kill them. John was monitoring the tactical situation in his HUD, while Linda floated in inner stillness, and Kelly rocked her helmet to some ancient classic music about biting dust. They even had Stella Mukai in the jump seat again, warily eyeing Fred as he polished a nick out of his combat knife. But she hadn't told him to put it away, apparently deciding his quick reflexes were reason enough to ignore the prohibition against unsecured equipment inside the bay. At least that was different, Mukai playing nice. She had to be pretty worried. Von Hout's voice sounded over Teamcom. Visual or tactical situation monitor? Von Hout was riding in the gunner's chair today so his hotshot lieutenant could do the flying. Chapoff clearly had the skills, and now that he had settled into his place on the team, everyone trusted him to listen to Von Hout's experience. Visual, John said. Thanks. A tactical display would present only the air battle, which wouldn't do Blue Team much good, as they were just along for the ride, but a visual image would show the terrain ahead, and that would prove very useful if they were forced down. A moment later, the view from the nose camera appeared on the situation monitor above Mukai's head. There were 24 broadswords scattered across the screen, all brightly marked by paired circles of blue propellant pouring from the nozzles of their main engines. Beyond the strike fighters rose the brown wall of the Highland Mountain's highest peaks, their jagged summits hidden within a charcoal pall of rain clouds. The Highland Mountains were one of the few areas on reach to escape the Covenant plasma bombardment, but it would have been wrong to say the range had been spared. A firestorm of apocalyptic proportions had swept up from the molten plains, consuming everything combustible and melting so much that wasn't. The verdant slopes had been reduced to banks of seared dirt and charred stone, the once lush meadows blanketed in cinders and ash. In the months-long deluge of black rain that had followed, the mountainsides had been washed bare, and landslides the size of cities had tumbled into the valleys below. Now there were naked scarps of bright stone where there had been forests, and kilometer-deep bogs of mud and ash filling the dales. The only hints of recovery to be found were on the lower slopes, where a few streaks of barely noticeable green had begun to emerge between slide scars. The team's destination was just visible in the middle of the situation monitor, a tangle of craggy ridges and plunging valleys that had formerly been the location of many of the UNSC's sprawling military facilities on Reach, including the Reach Military Complex and the Military Wilderness Training Preserve. There, the Spartan Twos had learned not only to fight, survive, and thrive, but to nurture the bonds of loyalty and fellowship that had allowed them to endure so many decades of hardship and loss. John had returned here a handful of times since that devastating day seven years ago, 
but none of that seemed to blunt the anger he still felt for what had happened to this place and to the ones who had lost their lives defending it. Now, robbed of its forests and even the soil those forests had grown in, the terrain looked more rugged and forbidding than when John and the rest of Blue Team had trained there. At its heart lay their current objective, a jagged ring of distant peaks with a tiny gap in the center, a gap that had been created during the war, when the Covenant literally removed the mountain over Castle Base. The aliens had been trying to reach an ancient forerunner installation that happened to be located deep under the base, but the UNSC had not realized that until Dr. Halsey was forced to take refuge there with Fred, Kelly, and several other Spartans. While they were searching for a way out, Halsey had discovered the item the Covenant was seeking, a slip-space-altering crystal that had some very strange effects on gravity, time, and space. Shortly after Halsey's find, John had led a rescue mission that almost literally plucked her and the others out of the Covenant's hands. The enemy's hunt for the crystal had quickly become an interstellar chase as they pursued the humans who now possessed it, but it had ended shortly afterward when the crystal was destroyed in an accidental explosion. As far as John knew, even Dr. Halsey had never figured out why the Covenant had been so desperate to have it. But the war with the Covenant was long over, and Blue Team's mission to recover the assets in Castle Base had nothing to do with the Forerunner installation, or the mysterious artifact Halsey had found inside it. Tiny splinters of blue light began to spill out of the highlands and out over the rolling glasslands at the base of the mountains, vectoring toward a convergence point directly ahead of the pelican. John checked the synced information displays in his HUD and confirmed his suspicions. Banshees and seraphs, ninety of them, with more entering detection range every second. About the only good thing he noticed was that the craft seemed to be arriving from every part of the range, rushing in from distant patrol circuits. Their pilots would be tired and slow. That doesn't look like an ambush. Fred looked toward John, his faceplate barely showing above the big stack of ordnance and recovery equipment secured to the deck between them. Weren't we expecting an ambush? Maybe they're going to try to force us down instead, John said. Maybe. Fred's tone was doubtful. But then they'd be trying to draw off our escort and get around behind us. That looks like a denial operation. Fred was right. The random vectors, the harried rush to converge on their position, none of that spoke of a planned ambush. Acknowledged, John said. Interesting. Interesting how, precisely? Kelly asked. As in, maybe the keepers are willing to shoot us down in flames after all? That kind of interesting? No, not that kind, John replied. They can't risk destroying the biospoofers if we crash. Not if we're wrong in assuming they actually need the spoofers, Kelly said. What if they don't? They would need the spoofers if they're after the assets, John said. Without the biometric gloves and contact lenses Dr. Halsey had prepared for them, it would be impossible to bypass the vault's security system. They can't get into the vault without them. Oh, they can get in, Fred said. You can get into anything with enough Blamex. I meant without blowing it, John said. Manufactured from the same Subanese Blamite crystals used in Needler ammunition, Blamex was one of the favorite high explosives used by ex-Covenant and banished forces. Don't forget about the self-destruct mechanism. We open the vault without the spoofers, 
and everything goes up. Us included. What if that is the point of their operation? Kelly asked. John couldn't quite see what she was driving at, but it was still troubling. Go on. The only thing we knew for sure was that the Keepers, one part of the banished forces, were following us. We assumed the rest, that our mission was compromised, and that they are trying to reach Castle Base to recover the same assets we are. Given our lack of intel on them, it was the most prudent course of action. It's still the most prudent course, John said. Whether they're after the assets or something else, we need to assume their priority is the assets. Given everything we don't know about their objective here on Reach, it would jeopardize the mission to assume anything else. Linda emerged from her meditation, raising her helmet to look across the stack of cargo at John. This is true, as far as it goes, she said. Then she pointed a finger at the situation monitor. Until your prudent assumption leads to an imprudent expectation. John saw the implication. If they aren't trying to recover the assets, they don't need our spoofers. And if they don't need our spoofers, Fred said, they don't need us in one piece. That is what I've begun to think, Kelly said. Only one problem, Fred said. Why care about the assets at all, if they're not trying to recover them? You've read the same intelligence reports I have on the Keepers, Kelly said. While John was stranded in space with Cortana, missing in action for nearly five years, the rest of Blue Team had joined up with a hotshot ferret team to tangle with the Keepers across several missions. You know how that Dokob worshipped Intrepid Eye? She's a forerunner AI, so maybe he's expanded his pantheon. Maybe he's trying to stop us because now he venerates, you know. She pointed skyward to indicate Cortana. Seems unlikely, John said. If that was the case, this mission would have been over the millisecond we touched the ground, because there would have been a guardian here waiting for us. And if we're going to question assumptions, let's question them all. There's no solid evidence that our mission was compromised by a security leak. Take that away, and what makes us think the Keepers even know about the assets? Ah, uh, the fact that they were following us, Fred said. We didn't assume that. Very true, Kelly said. But perhaps it was just surveillance. Maybe they were just trying to determine why we're on reach. And now they're in the Highland Mountains, Fred said, mounting a major operation to stop us from reaching Castle Base. That's no coincidence. Maybe they're not interested in Castle Base at all, John said, as the situation's list of unknowns entered a dark territory in his mind. Maybe they're interested in what's underneath Castle Base. Oh boy, Kelly sighed, then looked to John. What could possibly still be under there? If anything could survive a Covenant planetary bombardment, it'd be something Forerunner, Fred said. And they are keepers. Forerunner stuff is definitely high on their I want list. Whatever they may be after down there, it's outside our mission parameters, John said. The assets are our priority. We need to get to Castle and secure them before that ceases to be possible. Getting down there in one piece is the only thing that matters right now. As the Spartans talked, banshees and seraphs continued to stream toward the convergence point. Their propellant trails had grown so numerous that the situation monitor looked like it was filled with blue static dashes. The band of glass lands at the bottom of the monitor had narrowed to half its former width, a sign that the pelican and its escorts would soon be flying into the Highland Mountains proper if they weren't shot down first. Chapoff's voice sounded over Teamcom. Master Chief, are you seeing this? 
it might be smarter to wait until that support you requested is available. Shortly after leaving New Mohatch, John had contacted Sarah Palmer again, requesting that eight squadrons of broadswords and two marine battalions with full armor support be readied for deployment to the Highland Mountains. Palmer had promised to pass his request to General Doe on the next messenger relay. But John knew the support would not arrive anytime soon. The main body of the Infinity's broadsword wing was still being rearmed and refueled, and it took time to arrange an infantry deployment that size. The Infinity was at full battle alert, so the delay would be a matter of hours instead of days, but there wasn't much anyone could do to speed the process beyond that. Master Chief? Chapoff asked. That's going to be a long wait, John said. He paused, trying to figure out why the Keepers were willing to risk a major air battle to keep Blue Team away from Castle Base, trying to figure out whether the two enemies could be after different things, trying to weigh uncertainties against uncertainties. Finally, he realized his lack of intel made an informed decision impossible. The Keepers might not be interested in Castle Base at all, but they were clearly interested in stopping Blue Team, and that meant nothing had really changed. John still needed to assume the worst, and Blue Team still needed to reach Castle Base as soon as it possibly could. After a moment, John said, You're the pilot, Lieutenant Chapoff. You're the only one who knows whether you can get us there. Chapoff hesitated for a second, then said, Let me talk to the Major. The channel fell silent, and John continued to watch the situation monitor. As the mountains loomed larger, the band of rolling glasslands at the bottom shrank, and the enemy fighters grew more distinct. The tiny slivers of propellant trails elongated into needles, pushing along the cruciform specks of banshees and the teardrop dots of seraphs. Chapoff came back on the channel. It's going to be a rough ride, but we'll get you there. Chief Mukai, set the LAAG sling and weapon. We could need a tail gunner. Permission to add some missile capability to that station? John asked. It couldn't hurt, Chapoff said. But be sure you're braced. We're going to encounter some turbulence. Mukai's eyes went wide, but she quickly unbuckled from her crash harness. She removed the mounting sling from the forward storage locker, then paused to raise a brow at the combat knife in Fred's hand. After he secured it in the shoulder sheath under his pauldron, she made her way aft slipping between the two excavation machines to rig the sling to its support assembly in the overhead. Once she'd returned to her jump seat, John and Kelly freed the M41 light anti-aircraft gun from the cargo stack and went aft themselves. There was only half a meter of space between the two excavation machines, not enough for a Spartan in Mjolnir armor to squeeze through. John climbed onto the engine compartments, scraping his back-mounted fusion reactor against the overhead as he crawled forward. When he reached the LHD's driver's seat, Kelly passed him the LAAG so he could secure it into its sling assembly. By the time he was done, his HUD showed that their broadsword escorts had assumed a loose cone formation, with the pelican protected in the center. The cone was three kilometers long and five kilometers wide at its base, but in the tactical display, it looked almost solid. He felt the pelican accelerate and watched in his HUD as its velocity climbed past supersonic. Fred and Kelly had each grabbed an M57 pylum from the cargo stack and were working their way aft. There was more room alongside the excavation machines than between them, so they were shuffling along the bulkheads sideways, Fred on the LHD side and Kelly on the side with the drilling jumbo. 
Linda was holding two pylums, one in each hand. She had stopped behind the excavation machines and had two cases of high-explosive multi-purpose missiles wedged between the two vehicles at chest height. There wouldn't be room for her to fire a pylum past John and the LAAG, and the backflash would have ignited the ordnance behind her anyway. So she would be handling reloads for Fred and Kelly. Meanwhile, Mukai was struggling to keep her feet against the Pelican's acceleration. It was already at Mach 2, as she checked the tie-downs on the cargo stack, making sure everything had been properly secured after the weapons were removed. In the situation monitor behind her, the swarm of bright blue propellant discs had doubled from almost 50 to just under 100 as the broadswords called on their auxiliary engines to continue accelerating. A steady stream of smaller discs was pulling away out in front of them, STMMP air-to-air missiles streaking ahead to thin the cloud of whirling banshees. Beyond the banshees, John could see the drop-shaped hulls of probably 30 seraphs, circling in front of the familiar peaks and cliffs of the Military Training Wilderness Preserve. The seraphs would prove far more difficult to handle than the banshees. Their lack of agility wouldn't matter, because their shields would simply deflect the broadsword's missiles, so it would come down to nose-to-nose dogfighting, the keeper's heavy plasma cannons against the broadsword's asynchronous linear induction 35mm ASWAC autocannons. John watched Mukai as she struggled back to her seat and buckled in for a rough ride. The velocity readout in his HUD showed the pelican climbing past Mach 3, and then they were in the Banshee swarm. The little fighters rained down in flames as the STMMP missiles struck home, and dozens simply disintegrated beneath the broadsword's autocannons. But a handful slipped through the cone formation to make an attack run, their plasma bolts zinging and sizzling off the pelican's armor. Moments later, the dropship was through the banshees and the troop bay fell quiet again. John checked his HUD and saw dozens of banshee survivors all circling around to pursue. But at the speed the pelican and its escorts were traveling, the little fighters were already 20 kilometers behind the battle and falling another kilometer behind with every passing second. The seraphs came in firing, approaching in a dangerous head-on attack, hammering away with their plasma cannons, a few swinging out to risk fuel rod shots at the pelican. Bad mistake. Knowing their smaller missiles would be useless against the seraphs, if they had had any left, the broadsword pilots had already switched to their Ali-35 autocannons. Accelerated to a tenth the speed of light by magnetic coil gun technology, the heavy rounds could deplete seraph shields with a single hit, and punch through nanolaminate hull armor as though it were rolled steel. Half a dozen seraphs spiraled to the ground before the two formations even met. John ached to join the fray, but for now, all Blue Team could do was watch as Lieutenant Chapoff flew the pelican through the heart of a firestorm. Explosions everywhere, broadswords bursting into kilometer-long flame plumes, plasma bolts burning down the length of their fuselages, Seraphs dissolving into shard clouds under the hail of ASWAC rounds, keeper attackers and UNSC escorts going head-to-head, then blossoming into fireballs as they turned in the same direction and touched noses. A heartbeat later, the seraphs and the broadswords were past each other, fourteen broadswords pulling up hard to shed velocity and claim the high ground, fifteen seraphs converging on the pelican, their plasma cannons starting to flash three kilometers away. Everybody hold on, 
Chapoff said. Things are about to get wild. Fred glanced across the LHD at John, but said nothing. The joke that could relieve this tension simply didn't exist. John braced himself between the overhead and the LHD seat and watched the situation monitor, which suddenly grew blurry. John didn't notice the pelican had dropped into a dive at Mach 3 until he felt his stomach rising into his throat, then his back pressing into the LHD seat as they went into a spin at Mach 3. He had no idea how far it was to the ground, but he was pretty sure it wouldn't be far enough. He checked Linda and found her wedged between the excavation machines under the two crates of missile reloads, then located Kelly peering over the top of the drilling jumbo. He couldn't see her expression, but he could imagine her humming one of her old songs. Chief Mukai, eyes shut, had both arms crossed over her chest, clenching the straps of her crash harness, pressing her helmet against the bulkhead as if that might keep the mounting bolts from failing. John was afraid to check the tactical situation on his HUD, but did it anyway. The pelican was spiraling toward a long, deep canyon that descended out of the heart of the mountains, fifteen seraphs on its tail, and all still blazing plasma fire at it. But the keepers were two kilometers away, and falling farther behind as the ground approached, and, unlike Chapoff, they were decelerating hard. Two kilometers above them, the remaining broadswords were wheeling out of their climb and starting the long dive back into battle. A pair of thumps rumbled up from the deck, and John's throat clenched. Then he felt himself floating above his seat as the pelican exited its roll and pulled up. The situation monitor on the forward bulkhead unblurred itself and blossomed into a flashing ball of orange that instantly filled the screen and seemed to swallow the entire craft. The hull crackled and popped with heat expansion, and John felt himself being thrown forward as the pelican decelerated, hard. It wasn't a crash. At the velocity they were traveling, he wouldn't have felt anything, just blossomed into a spray of atoms dispersing into the atmosphere. John checked the tactical display in his HUD. Again. The pelican had dropped into the gash of a canyon he'd glimpsed earlier and fired a couple of missiles into the walls, filling the air with sensor-blinding debris that forced its pursuers to pull up. Now it was flying through the same narrow canyon nose-up, yet continuing to travel parallel to the ground as Chapoff used the belly shield and vector pylons to decelerate. Incredible piloting skills. That was something John had never seen before, and something he hoped to never see again, assuming he survived this time. Then the pelican's nose dropped to level and the G-forces began to push John around as the dropship banked and slipped from side to side, following the canyon's sinuous channel upriver, deeper into the heart of the mountains. The pelican's own sensors were blocked by the walls looming to either side, but its onboard computer was being fed data from its broadsword escorts, so the tactical display showed the complete battle, and it seemed apparent that the seraphs weren't going to be a problem for much longer. The broadswords had fallen in behind them, now in textbook attack position. The smart choice for the Seraphs would have been to cut and run. They were too ungainly in Reach's atmosphere to switch positions and turn on the nimble broadswords, which meant they were just flying targets. And if they tried to drop down on the pelican from above, they wouldn't last long enough to open fire. Instead of doing the smart thing, the Seraphs did both dumb things. The first group, Seven Craft, pursued the pelican. The second group fell back on Jirul Hanai pack-hunting tactics, 
dividing into two elements of four. The elements turned in opposite directions, then circled back toward each other, trying to lure their pursuers into a suicidal head-on double pass. But the Jirohanai weren't the only ones who understood team flying. The broadswords sent just four craft after the pursuit group and began to down all seven seraphs one by one. The rest of the broadswords climbed into a loop, then went into a tight line formation as they began their descent and arrived on the enemy's flank, just as the two elements were crossing. They unleashed a wall of cannon fire that demolished all eight seraphs in little more than a breath. By then, the pelican's velocity had dropped to subsonic, which meant the banshees were a problem again. The swarm Lieutenant Chapoff had outrun earlier was coming up fast, arranging itself into a long, narrow file so it could drop in behind the pelican and open fire. There were still more than fifty banshees, and while they were slower than broadswords, they were also more agile. John couldn't think of a better craft to pursue a pelican through a mountain canyon, which made him wonder why Chapoff wasn't climbing up where the broadswords would be better able to protect them. Looking forward again, John switched his attention from his HUD to the situation monitor above Chief Mukai's head. It took a moment for his mind to resolve the reddish-black blur into canyon walls, flashing by so fast that it was difficult to make out the familiar jags and curves. But when he did, he realized that the pelican was exactly where Chapoff and Von Hout had planned to be all along, running up the Black Iron Gorge, straight into the heart of the Reach military complex hidden in the Highland Mountains. The gorge ended at the very location where John and the other Spartans had lived for years. Nestled among the hills and heavily wooded terrain was the compound that had housed them, the academy where they had learned combat tactics, and a vast network of obstacle courses and training facilities where they had become what they now were, Spartans. It had been home to Blue Team, but it was also the perfect staging area for a covert approach. The site lay only a few kilometers from the entrance to Castle Base. Even better, the two locations were connected by a series of ravines that would provide ample cover for sneaking into position unseen, assuming they hadn't been filled by mudslides, of course. And as fate would have it, the complex was not far from Military Reservation O-1478B, known as Painland by those intimately familiar with it home to the very same obstacle course where John and Cortana had worked together for the first time, long before she had gone rampant. It had been seven long years since, but he remembered that initial run with her like it was yesterday. It had been described to him as a live-fire test to familiarize them with each other's capabilities. But one of Dr. Halsey's rivals had rigged it to undermine the entire Spartan II program. That John had survived and passed was largely due to Cortana's ingenuity and situational awareness. It pained him that the place where it had all begun might now play a part in putting an end to her. Von Hout's voice sounded over Teamcom. Secure troop bay for slipstream exposure. Mukai did a quick visual check of the bay, lingering on the cargo stack between her and the excavation vehicles, then shifted her gaze to the Spartans. Passengers, report status. John slipped out of his seat and positioned himself between the LHD bucket and the drilling jumbo's boom assembly. He grabbed the LAAG handle with one hand, ready to spin it around and open fire the instant the loading ramp opened. Blue leader ready. As the rest of the team reported, he checked the tactical display in his HUD. 
The Banshees had closed to firing range and were dropping into the gorge to begin their attack. The Pelican was flying 30 meters above the river, with nearly 60 kilometers of twisting gorge ahead. This would be a long ride. Once everyone had reported ready, Mukai extended her arm and gave a thumbs-up sign. Troop base secure. Lower loading ramp to control neutral position, Von Hout said. All weapons fire at will. Mukai acknowledged the order, then pulled a control relay from her thigh pocket, tapped a three-key sequence, and held her thumb on a toggle control. A ferocious howl filled the troop bay as the ramp dropped to a horizontal position, and the pelican's tail slewed side to side as the slipstream began to suck at the open bay. John swung the LAAG around and waited for the first targets to drop into his firing window. He knew that Fred and Kelly would be doing the same with their pylums. Their field of fire upward was blocked by the tail assembly and downward by the open loading ramp. Normally, that would have left the pelican vulnerable to attack from both above and below, but in the narrow, twisting confines of the Black Iron Gorge, any craft trying to dive down from above would hit nothing but a canyon wall, and the pelican was flying so close to the river surface that it would be impossible for a banshee to come up under it. The only attack possible was from the rear. The entire file of banshees dropped in behind the pelican almost at once, Although they boasted the crimson and gray armor of the banished designs, no matter what the arrangement had been, John knew that inside these craft were keeper pilots, just as devoted and zealous as the Covenant had ever been. They were almost as crazy as Chapoff, flying through the narrow gorge two abreast and stacked too high, forming four craft elements that would be able to unleash a hellish storm of concentrated fire. The lead element's plasma cannons were already flashing, the pelican's armor pinging and sizzling as their fire hit home. A couple of bolts flashed through the hatch into the LHD bucket. John was already squeezing the LAAG triggers, not even thinking about it, just reacting on instinct and pouring rounds back toward the fiery muzzles of the enemy. The rounded noses of the two lower banshees collapsed inward under his attack. Both craft dropped into the river and tumbled along its surface. A pair of hemp missiles hit the upper two banshees, and a curtain of fire stretched across the canyon. Fred and Kelly, of course. John was already letting loose on the bottom two craft in the next element, swinging back and forth between them, punching holes in their canopies as they began to return fire. Then everything went sideways, and he felt himself being pressed toward the deck as the pelican banked hard around a sharp bend in the canyon. His targets didn't make the turn, and slammed into the cliffs on the outer wall of the curve. Another pair of missiles flashed from the pelican's hatch and took out the two banshees in the top of the element as they rounded the bend, eliminating the enemy threats before they had a chance to bring their cannons to bear. Reload! Fred and Kelly called the word simultaneously, throwing their empty pylums back toward Linda and catching the ones she had already tossed toward them. With no enemy craft in view, John simply filled the canyon behind him with LAAG rounds, and when the third element of banshees came around the bend, they ran into a wall of armor-penetrating rounds and disintegrated in mid-air. By then, Fred and Kelly had their pylums shouldered and were waiting for the fourth element. The Spartans were pushing the Banshee formation back, giving it no chance to open fire as the pelican disappeared around one bend in the gorge after another. The trouble was, that also limited their own opportunities to eliminate Banshees, and the Black Iron Gorge was only so long. When they reached the end they would have to climb out over the Spartans' old training site, 
and the remaining banshees would be able to overwhelm them. They managed to eliminate two more elements over the next five minutes, but that was only twenty craft, which meant there were still at least thirty behind them. Jackie Narrow's coming, Chapoff said. Be ready. As child trainees, Blue Team had descended the Black Iron Gorge during an exercise, and John remembered the Chaki Narrows well. A particularly bad set of rapids, the Narrows had reduced their makeshift rafts into toothpicks and nearly drowned them all. The Narrows had seemed both endless and insanely fast, because the gorge was only 50 meters wide in that section. The close confines funneled the river through the channel and then straight down in a mad rush, John connected another belt of ammunition to the one already in the LAAG, at the same time speaking over Teamcom. You remember the Narrows, right? Oh yeah, Fred said. This is going to be fun. No doubt, Kelly said. But for whom? The Pelican banked around a set of S-turns, then leveled out and dropped so low, John could see its slipstream ruffling the surface of the churning rapids. He counted to two knowing the Banshees were at least that far behind them, then opened fire. A couple of breaths later, the lead element of the formation came around the bend and hit the wall of rounds streaming down the canyon. All four craft disintegrated and rained down on the water. But there were four more craft behind them, and yet another four behind those. Plasma fire began to fly up the canyon toward the pelican, hissing and chiming off its exterior. A bolt hit something on the drilling jumbo and deflected into the overhead. Another zipped past John and shattered the situation monitor. He knew Mukai was okay because he heard her cussing into Teamcom. Kelly and Fred loosed a pair of missiles, then another pair, and the gorge filled with flames. John continued to fire, and the next element of Banshees emerged from the fireball into a torrent of slugs. One flew apart in midair, and another veered into a wall, while the third dipped a canard into the river and went tumbling back down the canyon. The fourth exploded under the Spartans' counterattack. But the Banshees continued to come, and this time they were stacked three high, taking advantage of the Narrows straightaway. To make themselves more difficult targets, they undulated up and down, climbing a little higher each time, all the while mercilessly shooting plasma bolts at the Pelican. They're trying to line up a top attack, Fred said over Team Com. Get off the deck. It'll be fine. Chapoff sounded utterly calm. Just keep shooting. Keep them off the water. You think? Fred replied. But he fired another missile, and so did Kelly. John began to lay his fire just a few meters above the churning river surface, concentrating not so much on hitting the Banshees as trying to keep forcing them up. He had no idea what Chapoff was doing, but when a pilot said to do something on his bird, it was a good idea to listen. Fred and Kelly knocked down two more banshees with their missiles, and John took out another one. But there was a storm of plasma fire coming back in their direction, and the excavation equipment was taking so much damage that Chief Mukai finally got permission to raise the loading ramp to protect it. Then the bolts began to find their way to the Spartans themselves, taking down John's energy shields first, then Kelly's and Fred's simultaneously. They all had to duck behind the loading ramp while their shields regenerated, the plasma fire beginning to eat through the ramp. A bolt cut the LAAG sling, and the gun dropped into John's arms. He cradled the barrels in the crook of his elbow, then stood up to open fire, and discovered the pelican was trailing so much smoke he couldn't see his targets, only the crimson flashes of their plasma flying toward him. He fired anyway, 
keeping his rounds low as Chapoff had ordered. And then the smoke parted. The bright blue disks of two propellant nozzles flashed past overhead, the stubby wings of a broadsword rocking unsteadily as it passed through the pelican's slipstream. It must have been on the attack, because banshees were falling everywhere from the sky. John released the LAAG triggers, then the broadsword pulled up. The smoke closed in behind them again, and plasma bolts began to fly toward the pelican, this time coming from a few hundred meters farther down the gorge. He was about to return fire when the smoke parted a second time to reveal another pair of propellant nozzles speeding by overhead. More banshees fell, and when the broadsword pulled up this time, the next element was a thousand meters down the gorge. Their plasma bolts kept coming, but they weren't connecting, especially after a third broadsword dropped in for an attack. Chapoff's voice sounded over Teamcom again. Secure troop bay for high G maneuvers. Do it fast. As Mukai acknowledged the order, John and the Spartans chucked the LAAG and the pylums over the loading ramp. With all the smoke trailing behind the pelican, it was obvious that a hard landing was on the way, and no one wanted a loose weapon flying around the troop bay during a crash. With the bay secure, the Spartans returned to their seats and buckled into their crash harnesses, while Mukai used her control relay to raise the loading ramp. The pelican began to shudder and wobble. Whatever part of the pelican was smoking was failing fast. Von Hout's voice sounded over Team Com. Lieutenant Chapoff is going to set us down at the top end of the gorge. The location he was talking about was the Spartan's old training course, which was about 400 meters above the river. John just hoped they had the power to make it. The gorge wasn't as sheer or deep near its head as where they had entered it, but the walls were still steep. If Chapoff tried to land on them, the pelican would tumble into the plunge pool at the bottom of Iron River Falls. Once we're down, evacuate the troop bay quickly, Von Hout continued. Our escorts are zero ammunition, and there are still three banshees behind us. Acknowledged. John tried to check the tactical display in his HUD and realized the cockpit sink was down. He didn't like what that implied about their avionics. What about all that smoke? Nothing to worry about, Von Hout said. We took a hit in the missile bay. It's just some propellant burning off. Missile propellant burning off? Fred said. If that's nothing, I don't even want to know why we're shuddering so hard. Don't worry about the shuddering, Von Hout replied. We have bigger problems than uncontrolled vector pylons. A sharp jolt ran through the pelican. Then it tipped into a bank and began to snake up the gorge again. Fred and John looked at each other across the cargo stack, waiting for Von Hout to elaborate. He didn't. Rather than distract the Major with a question that would do absolutely nothing to get the pelican out of the gorge and onto the ground, John focused on something that would contribute to the mission, organizing a quick evacuation. Getting the excavation machines out of the bay had to come early. They were vital to the mission and they were situated for quick roll-off. Mokai could undo the tie-downs while the Spartans organized the cargo. There was still some ordnance in the stack, two more pylums and a case of spanker reloads, because Fred liked his M41 rocket launcher for ground combat. They could probably abandon it in a pinch, but it was on top, so they might as well toss it onto the drilling jumbo operator's platform. If it fell off later, so be it, but they had to move it anyway. It was all the stuff under the ordnance, the titanium haulage buckets packed with bins of enhanced gelignite, the winches loaded with spools of nano-braided titanium cable that was mission-critical. Castle Base, 
or what remained of it after the self-destruct charges Dr. Halsey had set off to prevent its assets from being claimed by the Covenant, was 2,000 meters down a vertical access shaft, one that would be at least partially filled with gravel and broken rock. So all that equipment came with them, even if it meant dragging it out of a burning pelican while a trio of banshees strafed them. But their weapons came first. Weapons always came first. That's why Blue Team was still alive and kicking after all these years. Listen up in the troop bay, John said. Once we're on the ground, Blue 2 will access the weapons locker and distribute our individual weapons. Chief Mukai, you and Blue 4 will get the excavation equipment rolled off. Blue 3 and I will drag... That was as far as John made it before the pelican went into a steep climb and began to shudder so violently that it sounded like they were being pounded by fuel rod cannons. With no cockpit sink to check on his HUD, John instinctively looked to the shattered situation monitor above Mukai's head, and then his gut finally accepted what his head had known all along. They were riding blind, and their lives were entirely in Lieutenant Chapoff's hands. John went back to the evac plan. Blue 3 and I will drag the haulage buckets out and load them onto the LHD. Then we'll clear the area. The pelican bucked hard, as if it were dancing across the sky on its tail. Two holes opened in the deck behind the cargo stack as a pair of fuel rods exploded through the dropship's belly armor. The blast wave was the worst part, slamming everyone in the troop bay back against the bulkheads, Blue Team's helmets actually ringing. Then they went weightless as the pelican stopped climbing. John expected it to start sliding back on its tail down into the gorge, but Chapoff brought the nose down by timing a few last thrusts out of the uncontrolled vector pylons. The big chin gun began to chatter, and they went into a flat spin and dropped fast. The pelican couldn't have been very high up, because they pancaked into the ground almost immediately, the tail section just a little downhill. Go, 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 John ordered. Fred was already at the weapons locker, tossing John's assault rifle over the cargo stack, then Kelly's shotgun and Linda's sniper rifle. John caught his MA-40 in the air and raced aft past the drilling jumbo. About halfway down, there was a long breach in the bulkhead where a fuel rod had grazed the pelican's starboard side. Through the hole, he saw the burning hulk of an anti-aircraft wraith sitting on a rocky flat, with a jagged wall of mountains rising about a kilometer to the south. It didn't much resemble the old military compound anymore, thanks to the Covenant, but it was in the right place and looked about the right size. Chapoff had done his part. By the time John reached the loading ramp, Mukai already had it down. He paused just long enough to make sure Blue Team was ready to engage, then led the way out onto the rocky barrens. The pelican had come down with its tail facing west, which gave them a clear view of the entire plateau, across two kilometers of broken rock all the way to the wall of brown, barren escarpments at the base of the Highland Mountain's highest peaks. There was nothing coming toward them over land, and no banshees in sight. Blue Four. Watch our six, John ordered. Blue two, bring out the last of our pylums in case those banshees show up. Blue three, you advance on the port side. I'll take starboard. Everyone flashed green, and John ducked around the pelican's tail and started up the starboard side. The burning wraith that he'd spotted from inside sat 30 meters distant. Its fuel rods were crackling loudly as they cooked off, its charging gas teasing the flames into a spiral column. The Pelican had crashed directly atop a second anti-aircraft wraith, and one of the big fuel rod cannons had crashed down on its canopy. 
Von Hout was already out of the gunner's seat and leaning over the Wraith's cannon to peer down at Chapoff. John continued forward, his MA-40 shouldered and ready to fire at any keepers who climbed out of the Wraith behind Von Hout. Blue 3, sit rep, he asked. I have a crippled Wraith 30 meters to the north, she said. Two crew members attempting to evacuate. Take them, I'll assist here. He reached the front of the pelican and climbed up on the smashed wraith to make sure the alien crew wouldn't cause them any trouble, then saw that both Jirohanai had bullet wounds between their eyes. Von Hout had already handled them. John circled around the nose of the pelican, then climbed up opposite Von Hout and looked down toward Chapoff. Damn, the kid was in trouble. The wraith cannon had smashed through the pelican's canopy, right down the middle, carving a space between the two operator seats. The weapon's muzzle must have caught something on the way in, because it had pinned Chapoff to his seat. His chest was caved in, and his arms were resting on top of the barrel assembly. His chin was covered in blood, no doubt expectorated from his internal wounds. Chapoff looked at John and tried to smile. Best I could do, he said. The broadswords... He coughed, and more blood foamed from his mouth. You flew a great mission, Lieutenant. John did not try to assure Chapoff that he was going to be fine. They both knew it wasn't true, and he didn't want to lie to a dying hero. Legendary. We'll handle it from here. Wait! Chapoff gasped. He tried to say more, then looked to Von Hout. You tell... him? Right. Von Hout looked across the cockpit to John. The broadswords did a flyover at Menekite Mountain. The keepers are already there in force and so is that intrusion corvette we saw from New Mohatch. John nodded. Thanks. I thought that was likely. He reached into the cockpit and squeezed Chapoff's shoulder. Legendary. Fred arrived with a pylum and an extra magazine, then climbed up and looked over Von Hout's shoulder. Oh, man, he said. What can we do for you, Lieutenant? Somebody who needs to know? Chapoff shook his head. Personnel has all that. Just report it. He pointed his chin at the pylum. And leave that for me. You need to get those excavation machines unloaded and get out of here. There are still three banshees coming. Fred's helmet rocked back in surprise, and he looked across the cockpit toward John. Don't worry about the banshees, John said. We can... Chapoff's voice grew stronger. I'm not asking, Master Chief. That's an order. Now it was John's turn to be surprised, but he didn't argue. He came to attention and raised his hand to his helmet. Yes, sir. He finished the salute, then looked to Fred. You heard the lieutenant. Give the man his missile launcher. Fred placed the pylum on Chapoff's shoulder in firing position. He then smashed a larger hole into the canopy so Chapoff had the maximum range of fire and placed the extra magazine in his lap. He could have released the seat and allowed it to draw to the back of the cockpit, giving the pilot complete freedom of motion, but there was no reason to risk it. Who knew what the cannon was holding in place? Then Fred came to attention and saluted. Give him hell, Lieutenant. You too, Spartan. Chapoff returned the salute. Then John and Fred went aft to help finish the offloading, while Major Van Hout stayed behind to share a few last words. Chief Mukai already had both excavation machines on the ground, and Kelly was helping her strap the spare ordnance onto the jumbo operator's platform. John caught Mukai's eye. We can finish here, he said. You have a moment to say goodbye. I already did. She tapped her helmet jaw guard 
where the microphone was located, then tried to blink back a tear. I have my orders. John nodded. Affirmative. He went into the troop bay after Fred and helped him drag the haulage buckets out. The cargo platform on the back of the LHD was sagging, so they loaded the haulage buckets, still filled with winches and gelignite bins, into the two-kilometer mucking bucket on the front. Von Hout arrived running. Time to go, he said. The banshees are climbing out of the gorge. Fred looked back across fifty meters of rock barrens toward the edge of the drop-off. Not arguing, but how do you know? Von Hout pointed into the sky, where two broadswords were circling just beneath the cloud ceiling, one waggling its wings and the other doing barrel rolls. Our escorts may be out of ammunition, he said, but they still have eyes. They couldn't have used a comm unit, Fred asked. Whatever works, John said. There were a dozen reasons pilots might signal visually instead of electronically, the most likely being that their squadron commander was dead, and they didn't have time to request access to the Spartans' encrypted channels. Blue 2, grab a pylum and ride shotgun with Chief Mukai on the jumbo. Fred flashed an acknowledgement and headed for the machine. No one really expected Lieutenant Chapoff to take out the Banshees, but no one wanted to deny him the shot either. Major von Hout was already climbing into the driver's seat of the LHD, so John signaled Kelly to take lead, then fell in between the two machines on foot. Linda hung back on rear guard, ready to bring Nornfang to bear on anything that popped up over the horizon. They started across the charred vestiges of the compound, toward the ravine system that John intended to use for their approach to Castle Base. The ravine would connect to Longhorn Valley, a broad dale that wound back and forth across the western portion of the Highland Mountains. It eventually thinned down to another narrow ravine that cradled Bighorn River, yet another critical site in the Spartans' training. Countless exercises had been conducted on that river during that time, forging them together into the team they now were. This place had made them. John wondered if, after completing this mission, they would ever make it back to Reach. It was a somber thought, but it wasn't the first time it had crossed his mind. If the rehab pioneers had any say about it, one day the Covenant's work would be undone and Reach would be restored. John might never see that day, but the thought of it gave him some measure of pride. Humanity wasn't done with Reach yet. They had been traveling only a minute when Kelly raised an arm and pointed at the ground, about fifty meters to her left. It really shouldn't surprise me, she said without breaking stride, but that is about the last thing I ever expected to see again. It took a moment for John to find what she was pointing at. Then he saw a small object about the size of his own helmet, half buried and curving up out of the ground. At first he thought it was a lump of Lyrite or an oddly shaped rock. But the hint of brassy sheen made him realize he was looking at the top half of a bell. The same one the Spartans would ring three times when they completed the notorious obstacle course Chief Mendez had called the Playground. I don't know why you shouldn't be surprised, Fred said. I sure as hell am. I'd have thought some jackal would have sold it as a war relic by now. They don't know its worth. Linda said. To them, it's just a hunk of brass. I'm glad for that, John said. He thought about suggesting they dig it up after the mission, if they had time. Except they wouldn't have time, and he knew it. And maybe it was better that way. He had been six years old the first time he rang that bell. A lifetime ago. He'd been assigned to a team with Kelly and his buddy Samuel 034, and told to win a race together. 
He had won all right, sprinting ahead alone to climb a greased pole and ring the bell three times. But he had left Kelly and Sam behind, and the goal had been to win as a team. All three of them had gone without dinner that night. For the first time, John had understood what it meant to depend on someone else to succeed, and to have them depend on him. To a six-year-old, it had been a simple but profound lesson. It changed the way he looked at the world and also at himself from then on. The next time the three of them teamed up, they had eaten well that evening. The bell was a big part of his past, but it belonged here on reach with the rest of his childhood. If he removed it from the compound now, it would surely lose that meaning and be just an ordinary bell. John had already passed it when a boom rolled across the barrens behind him. He spun in time to see the first banshee in the sky beyond their own downed pelican, engulfed in flames and dropping back into the gorge. As he watched, the second banshee flew out of the gorge and was met by a white propellant lance rising from the pelican's cockpit. The banshee erupted in a fireball, then fell onto the plateau and began to roll across the ground. The last banshee arrived, dashing onto the plateau, swinging wide to approach the wrecked pelican from the side. Its plasma cannons began to blaze, and John saw Linda shoulder Nornfong, the sniper rifle's barrel tracking the craft as she prepared to open fire. But she didn't pull the trigger. Even when John felt sure she had the banshee in her sights and had worked out where it would be when her bullet arrived, even from 200 meters away, he could see the flashes of the banshee's bolts punching through the pelican's hull. And still, Linda held her fire. Then the banshee was on its target pulling up hard to avoid a collision just as the pelican ignited, a giant ball of white fire. The banshee seemed to ride the explosion higher for a second, then disintegrated into a confetti of glowing shards. Linda lowered her sniper rifle. Fred said, You know, I think we might have been underestimating Chapoff, even after we stopped underestimating him. Yeah. John pulled his sound suppressor from its storage pouch, then fitted it onto the end of his MA-40. I think we were. He turned toward the bell and took aim, then rang it three times. Chapter 19 1308 hours, October 12th, 2559, military calendar. Vanadnite Mountain, Chongrad Region, Highland Mountains, Continent Epos, Planet Reach. John didn't do waiting well. Having time to plan was good. Having time to obsess over weak spots and contingency plans? Not so much. Worse yet was replaying the recent past, spending hours second-guessing decisions he had made in seconds. Like now, wondering if there had been a way to save Bella Diestel, or if he had been right to let Lieutenant Chapoff make that crazy flight up Black Iron Gorge. It had been Chapoff's call, of course, but John had known what he would decide. John and the rest of Blue Team were high on the shoulder of Vanadnite Mountain, doing surveillance on the approach to Castle Base. They had been lying in the shadows beneath a warthog-sized boulder for two hours, looking out over a broad valley toward the stony slopes of Omayite Mountain. Within the valley lay a huge basin where the Covenant's plasma batteries had burned away Menachite Mountain seven years earlier, removing it all the way down to the roots. At more than 10 kilometers across and close to 200 meters deep, the basin resembled a vast open-pit surface mine, 
but instead of the terraced benches that mines used to control rockfall and erosion, its walls were steep Le Chatelierite slopes. Over the years, the rim had collapsed onto the slopes, and untold tons of talus and gravel had slid down onto the basin floor. Near the center of the basin, a jet of rusty brown muck was shooting up from a massive hole, then suddenly changing direction to arc out onto a slurry dump at least a hundred meters away. Even from this distance, John knew exactly what he was looking at. He'd figured it out two hours ago, the moment he peered out into the basin and saw the muddy geyser rising from the entrance to Castle Base. Located two kilometers underground, the base was accessible only via a vertical shaft that had served an old titanium mine. During their original assault on Menachite Mountain, the Covenant had enlarged the access shaft to five times its original diameter, then extended it another 400 meters in order to reach an ancient forerunner installation located below the titanium mine. Now, the shaft was basically a huge sump filled with mud and gravel from the surrounding basin. This was the main reason that Blue Team had brought along excavation machines and haulage equipment so they could clear the shaft. The keepers of the One Freedom were employing a different method altogether to clear it, and John liked their way better. They were using a pair of portable gravity lifts to remove the muck, one down inside the shaft to push it to the surface, and another at the top, positioned next to the shaft and angled to shoot the slurry out onto the dump. Earlier, John had increased his faceplate magnification window to medium and spent some time watching the surface operators work. There had appeared to be ten of them, three with the saurian frames and long-beaked heads of Kigyar, and seven with the stubby limbs and wedge-shaped methane tanks of Ungoy. None of them seemed to have much to do, the Kigyar pointing and gesturing, while the Ungoy adjusted the angle and direction of the lift pad. Judging by the size of the Kigyar compared to the gravity lift, it was large for a portable model, with a pad fully ten meters in diameter. The pinch fusion reactor powering it was equally impressive, with a core chamber two meters high and four meters across. Most likely, it was one of the pirate lifts the Banished employed when they raided a city. John had never seen a pirate lift in action before, but he'd read about them. A Banished vessel would hover above a city, well beyond missile range, while raiding parties moved their portable lifts around to key locations, then gravity lifted their loot straight into the hold. The keepers obviously had no interest in collecting the slurry, so they'd been able to adapt the technique and clear the shaft even faster than a raiding band could clean out a town. So it made sense to let the keepers do the work. Then all Blue Team would need to do was capture the shaft and descend two kilometers to Castle Base. And had their only opposition been the ten keepers operating the surface lift, Blue Team would have done just that two hours ago but the east side of the basin was bordered by a vast area of glass flats, created when the Covenant attack channeled the molten rock from the destruction of Menachite Mountain into the adjacent vale, Reitet Valley. Bivouacked on those flats were more troops than even Blue Team could handle, 3,000 keepers mounted on marauders, wraiths, and ghosts. An even bigger concern was the front-heavy intrusion corvette, sitting on the south end of the flats, about a kilometer beyond the basin. With his faceplate magnification pushed to maximum, John could see that it was surrounded by a ring of Jirohanai guards. He had been watching them for the last hour, and he had not seen one so much as fidget. 
That kind of discipline was rare for Jirohanai, as was their drab gray power armor, and it made John wonder whom they served. So before Blue Team could take control of the access shaft, they had to also take control of both the Talus Basin and the Glass Flats, effectively all of Reitet Valley, and they had to maintain that control. Blue Team had developed a plan to do exactly that, intending to empty the entire valley of Keeper troops, but it wasn't simple, and it wasn't fast. That last part concerned John the most. He liked to hit hard and quick, and this plan was more deliberate. It had a lot of moving parts, and it required a lot of patience. The first indication that Blue Team's long wait was finally over came when the Grey Guards, as John had come to think of them, began to leave their posts at the corvette and race under its armored bow to disappear into the internal hangar bay. Then the keepers out on the glass flats began to stir, shouting to one another and gathering their equipment. John didn't need to break calm silence to know that Blue Team's support was finally arriving. The distant hiss of incoming broadswords began to rise in the north, from the direction of the compound where Lieutenant Chapoff had died saving the mission. Blue Team wouldn't have to hold much longer. Things would start happening fast now, which was just the way he liked it. The last of the Grey Guards disappeared into the Corvette's hangar bay. Keeper vehicles began to move north toward Koldush Canyon, which connected Reitet Valley with the old compound. The first elements of the UNSC support battalions should already be seizing the site to use as a landing zone. That was one of the moving parts of the big plan that John didn't control, but it was just common sense. He had to assume General Doe would send an advanced detachment to secure the landing zone. The remnants of the Keeper's badly savaged Banshee force began to rise into the air and stream north to offer air cover for their mechanized forces. Even the nine seraphs circling high over Reitet Valley closed formation and dropped down to protect the corvette. We'll designate the anti-aircraft wraiths, John announced. He spoke over his voice meter, not team comm, because even a low-power transmission would risk alerting the enemy to Blue Team's presence. Those seraphs had been overhead all day for a reason, and that probably had something to do with using their surveillance technology to guard against exactly what Blue Team was preparing to do. We need to convince that corvette that the first broadsword squadron is just clearing the way for the main event. John didn't need to elaborate. The last place any ship of the line wanted to be during an air attack was on the ground, and for their plan to work, they needed to clear the corvette out of the valley. It was just too much firepower for them to neutralize with a spanker and a few grenades. If that thing sticks around, this could get tricky. Get tricky? Fred replied. He was lying so close to John that they were touching shoulders, all four Spartans sacrificing tactical spacing in order to speak by voice meter. Van Hout and Mukai were in a sandy gulch 200 meters behind and below them, waiting with the excavation machines beneath an overhanging cliff that would hide them from every direction but north. If this plan gets any trickier, it could seem desperate. Desperate is good, Kelly said. You're at your best when you're desperate. Then I'll be great today, Fred said. The hiss of the arriving squadron was building to a roar, which meant the broadswords would soon be close enough to detect an infrared guidance signal. John and the others slid their designator units into the multifunction receivers beneath their MA-40 barrels, then synced the units to their helmet reticles, opened magnification windows in their faceplates, 
and located the anti-aircraft wraiths. There was no need to discuss who would designate which wraith. Blue Team had a well-drilled procedure. The Spartan at the left end of their line, in this case Linda, would start with the leftmost target and work inward. The two Spartans in the middle, Fred and John, would commence in the middle and work their way outward. The Spartan on the right end, Kelly, would go to the rightmost target and work her way inward like Linda was doing on the opposite end. Once John had located his target, he said, Ready to designate. Everyone answered in the affirmative. Designate. They touched their triggers, and the designator units began to emit needle-thin beams of infrared light that extended more than 10 kilometers, each one touching the appropriate target. The Spartans couldn't actually see the beams without engaging special faceplate filters, which would impair their vision in other wavelengths, but the broadsword targeting systems would have no issues. A pair of the strike fighters launched two missiles apiece. The missiles' guidance systems were locked onto the beams, so each weapon followed its designated beam directly into the target, detonating with fatal precision against the wraith hulls. The whole process took only three seconds but it was still dangerous for the Spartans. If a patrolling seraph or artillery piece happened to be scanning the area in the correct infrared wavelength, it would see the designator beams as clearly as the broadswords did, and the Spartans wouldn't even realize they'd been spotted until the counter-strike arrived. Blue Team quickly designated their next targets. With only three anti-aircraft wraiths remaining, John shifted his designator to a lich that was just taking off with a full load of warriors and equipment. The broadsword missiles arrived two seconds later, destroying all three wraiths and turning the lich into a whirling ball of secondary explosions. No counter-strike. There wasn't an upside in sticking around to designate lower priority targets, so John jerked a thumb toward the back exit of their hiding place. Phase two, move out. Blue Team crawled out from beneath the boulder and moved a few steps down slope so they would be hidden behind the shoulder of the mountain, then removed the unwieldy designator pods from their MA-40s. The broadswords were visible now, coming in just under the cloud ceiling and dropping down for a close attack run over Reitat Valley. With the enemy already under fire, there was no sense maintaining comm silence. John opened the aircom command channel. Broadsword leader, blue leader. Nice shooting. We'll be following you into the combat zone, so weapons tight. Meaning, attack only targets confirmed to be hostile. And avoid the geyser. We'll handle that. Blue leader, Alpha squadron leader, the broadsword commander replied. Explain geyser? Ah, you'll know it when you see it. John didn't know how to explain the fountain of gravity-lifted slurry in less time than it would take the broadswords to reach it. Do what you can to drive off that intrusion corvette. No worries on the Corvette, Alpha Leader said. We spotted him on orbital infrared. A special package is inbound. Glad to hear it, John said. Alpha Squadron was already sweeping in to engage the Seraphs that had dropped down to protect the Corvette, so it was time to sign off and let them do their job. Happy hunting. Blue Leader out. The ground shuddered and the air whooshed as Alpha Squadron shot over Venadnite Mountain. They were in echelon formation the third broadsword from the middle, Alpha Leader presumably, wagging its wings as they passed. The squadron split into three elements, the first four craft diving into a missile run. The shoulder of the mountain blocked John's view of the actual attack, but he saw six seraphs go after them, and the second Alpha element immediately bolt after those six enemy craft. 
The third element stayed high to engage the last three seraphs. The muffled thunder of missile strikes began to rumble out of the basin. By then, Blue Team was well into phase two, with Fred and Kelly descending the mountain to collect Von Hout, Mukai, and the excavation machines. John and Linda crossed the sandy gulch they intended to use for moving the excavation machines into the Talus Basin, then raced to the top of the next ridge. It overlooked Koldush Canyon, the narrow, winding gorge that was the keeper's only route to the old training compound where the UNSC battalions were landing. The keeper column was moving slowly but steadily, an indication that the lead elements were not having much trouble pushing through the mud and rock slides scattered along their route probably because they had been partially cleared earlier in the day by the same anti-aircraft wraiths that had downed Blue Team's transport pelican and killed Lieutenant Chapoff. There were only seven pieces of mechanized armor, all marauders, still waiting to enter Koldush Canyon, and with the broadswords out in the flats, raining missiles down on anything with a hull, they were pushing hard to move forward. From his position, John had a partial view through the canyon mouth back into Reitet Valley, he could see the geyser of slurry still flying from the access shaft. In the distance beyond, just visible over the top of its arc, the intrusion corvette continued to sit on the ground, its shields flashing as pieces of fighter craft rained down on it. John opened a magnification window and saw what looked like the parts of four different seraphs and two broadswords scattered across the surrounding flats. He couldn't understand why the corvette remained passive. Its energy shielding was proof against most broadsword attacks, but if the UNSC downed the last seraphs and started autocannon runs, they would eventually break through. At the very least, the corvette should have been in the air, using its own weapons to fend off air-to-ground attacks on the keeper forces. Instead, it continued to sit, quietly, not even activating the handful of weapons it could fire from the ground. And that troubled John. Good things rarely came of an enemy acting so unpredictably. Fred's status light flashed green, and John turned to see him and Kelly escorting the two excavation machines over the wet sand in the gulch below. John signaled them to continue. The gulch opened directly into the Talus Basin, just 400 meters from the mouth of Koldush Canyon. But the last marauder was already inside the canyon and passing below the ridge, by the time the excavation machines reached the Talus Basin, the keeper column would be another kilometer closer to the training compound, and unable to return to the basin quickly enough to interfere with Phase 3 of Blue Team's plan. John looked back to the inert corvette, then heard the distant growl of another inbound UNSC squadron. The remaining seraphs tried to break off to meet the arriving threat. They lost two more craft immediately with four broadswords giving chase to the three that escaped. That left six friendly birds to provide close air support over the basin. It would have been all Blue Team needed, if not for the intrusion corvette. This will be interesting, Linda said over Team Com. Look what the Infinity sent down. Twelve delta-shaped specks were dropping out of the clouds, tiny fans of blue propellant pushing them along. Longswords. No wonder the seraphs were panicking. The workhorses of UNSC Orbital Strike Doctrine, longswords were capable of carrying a huge range of munitions, from their chin-mounted Ali-50 asynchronous linear induction autocannons all the way up to Shiva-class nuclear missiles. It was hard to say what ordnance they were here to deliver. John's first guess 
would be Shield Buster ASGM-15 EMP-assisted missiles, which used an initial burst of electromagnetic energy to penetrate an energy shield before delivering a hull-penetrating charge. Or they might be carrying octodarts, relatively small, laser-guided bombs filled with octronitrocubane charges that simply blasted through the shield. There were a half-dozen other possibilities, any one of them powerful enough to cripple an intrusion corvette, especially one that was still grounded. But apparently, the Longsword Squadron appearance was the breaking point. When John looked back to the corvette this time, the vessel was finally rising into the air, a long line of tiny figures spilling from the hangar bay under its bow. He opened a magnification window again and saw that the figures were the same gray guards he'd spent so much time watching earlier. But now they were wearing jump jet packs and carrying an assortment of weapons, everything from shock, spike, and plasma rifles to something that vaguely resembled a larger, blunt-nosed fuel rod cannon. At least the mystery of the lingering corvette had been solved. It had been waiting while the gray guards re-armed for heavy combat. Now things were really about to heat up. John switched to the air command channel. Alpha Leader, Blue Leader, request urgent ground support mission. Let me guess, Alpha Leader said. The jumpers? Affirmative, John said. There had to be at least a hundred on the ground now, and the line pouring from the corvette's hangar bay showed no signs of diminishing. Whatever you can do to thin them out, we'd need an ammunition drop to eliminate all of them. We'll do what we can. What about the geyser? Continue avoiding, John said. As long as the keepers were still clearing the access shaft, he was going to let them. Better that than Blue Team having to excavate it themselves by bucket and winch in the middle of a battle. We need that equipment intact. Acknowledged, Alpha Leader said. Good luck down there. The Grey Guards continued to stream out of the Corvette's hangar as it rose past a hundred meters above the glass, using their jump jets to control their descent. As soon as they hit the ground, they gathered into ten jumper packs and started across the flats toward the Talus Basin, weaving and dodging as the broadswords arrived and opened fire. A few of the Jirohanai hit their jump jets and tried to bound across the flats in fifty-meter leaps, but they were less maneuverable in the air than on the ground, and the broadswords took out every one of them. Two broadswords broke off and began to trail the departing corvette at different altitudes, dodging plasma fire from its tail guns while simultaneously shooting Ali-35 rounds into the jumpers still leaping from its hangar bay. Some of the guards blossomed into fireballs as their jump jets ignited, with the rest simply going limp and plummeting to the ground. The other four broadswords continued to make low runs over the flats, trying to pick off the gray guards as they headed toward the Talus Basin. John could see right away that these four would not be as successful as the two craft trailing the corvette. The Jirohanai were too spread out, with plenty of craters and boulders to use as hard cover. Some of the gray guards were returning fire with the odd-looking weapons, large, heavily bladed, explosive launchers of obvious Jirohanai design. At first, John was pretty sure they were a new kind of fuel rod cannon, given their muzzle action and the energy they were launching but they were not fuel rod guns, not even close. The weapons were now firing some sort of red plasma incendiary that had a shallow ballistic arc. One of the incendiaries hit a broadsword, exploding across the entire wing and into the fuselage. Within a second, the skin began melting away in flames, 
then the entire craft was disintegrating as the frame burned. Whatever these new weapons were, John hoped none of them made it into the access shaft. The longswords arrived overhead, their huge wedges slicing across the sky a thousand meters above the surrounding mountaintops. A woman's voice sounded on the aircom channel. Blue Leader Alpha 2. There was no reason to ask why Alpha Leader was no longer the one contacting John. It had been his broadsword that was hit by the plasma incendiary. Lima Leader is assuming local command. Welcome, Lima Leader, John said. I mean that. Happy to be here. This voice was also female, but older and steelier than Blue 2's. Requesting guidance? That intrusion corvette has moved off 300 kilometers, and it's still going. He may be trying to draw us away. Do you want us to pursue? Negative, John said. We just need him out of the way. It would be more useful to orbit on station. We have clearance to offer full support until bingo propellant, Lima leader said. That gives you four hours. That'll have to be enough, John replied. Longswords were too large and lumbering to provide the same kind of close air support that broadswords did, but they had the firepower. A lot of it. Weapons tight, and stay away from the geyser. So we've been told, Lima leader said. Twice. Laser-guided bombs began to rain down from the longswords, raising a two-kilometer-wide ring of conflagration that blanketed the flats and overlapped the rim of the Talus Basin, dipping to within a half-kilometer of the access shaft. At times, the heat was so intense that John felt his Mjolnir's climate control system kick in to keep him at the optimal performance temperature. And through it all, the muck continued to shoot out of the access shaft, arcing over the Talus Basin to feed the growing slurry dump behind the boulder wall. Whatever the enemy was doing down there, it was determined to see it through. But so was Blue Team. And now that the UNSC had seized control of Reitet Valley, the time had come to take over the Keeper's shaft-clearing operation. John switched to Team Com. Phase 3. He pulled a control transmitter from his electronics pouch and disengaged the safety override, then depressed the activation pad. Engaging minds. Preparing secondary charges, Linda said. She tapped her own control transmitter and slipped it back into her pouch. Concussion activation, 5, 10, and 30-minute delays. Confirmed, John said, starting back down the slope. Let's move. When Blue Team started across the Talus Basin, the keepers would spot them. Realizing they had been lured out of position by the landing at the compound, the commander would almost certainly send a detachment back to defend the access shaft. To make sure that detachment never arrived, the Spartans had buried a field of Lotus anti-tank mines near the mouth of Koldush Canyon and placed enhanced gelignite charges on some cliffs a little farther up the route. With a squadron of long swords above them, the trap was probably overkill. But Blue Team hadn't known about the long swords when they were making their preparations and in explosive situations like this, overkill was always welcome. John and Linda caught up to the rest of the team near the end of the gulch. Major Von Hout and Chief Mukai were waiting behind a bend with the excavation machines. Fred and Kelly were kneeling at the edge of the basin, their passive camouflage packages engaged. John activated his own and joined them, leaving Linda to watch their back trail. The near side of the basin was pocked with strike craters and littered here and there with alien bodies. But most of the keepers had been up on the flats when the fighting started and were now on their way through Koldush Canyon. 
the scenario on the opposite side of the basin was different. It appeared that at least a few of the Grey Guards had survived the longsword strikes and made it over the rim, because there was so much smoke rising from that area of the basin that it looked like a fog bank had rolled in. John opened a magnification window and saw that in places, the sandstone boulders had been reduced to just sand, and the ordnance was continuing to fall. But dozens of the brute jumpers had cleared the bombing zone and were continuing to work their way toward the access shaft, now braving broadsword strafing runs as they scurried from boulder to boulder. John had his onboard computer begin a count of still-advancing Jirohanai and quickly reached 50. If even half that number survived to set up a perimeter defense around the shaft, it could take Blue Team an hour to eliminate them, even with close air support. And John was beginning to think they didn't have that long. The geyser was changing. The slurry was no longer arcing into the dump in a steady flow. Instead, there would be nothing for a few seconds, then a brief surge of gravel and stone, then nothing again for a few more seconds. It seemed like the workers down in the shaft were running low on muck. Worse, the material was beginning to look drier, as though it was no longer coming from the bottom of a mud-filled sump, possibly an entry tunnel leading into Castle Base. Other than the Grey Guards approaching from the opposite side of the basin, the only obvious hostiles were the Kigyar and Ungoy still manning the pirate lift. There was always the possibility of a small force hiding somewhere in ambush, but that strategy required knowing the target's route, and given the jumble of stone below, John doubted that even Mukai knew how she was going to get the bulky excavation machines to the access shaft. Blue 3 will stay with special crew to defend the excavation machines and assist with route clearing. John was speaking over Teamcom. Blue 2 and Blue Leader will advance on the access shaft at top speed and deny those jumpers any chance to defend it. Blue 4 will accompany us until she's in range to begin offensive operations. Questions? When nobody had any, John checked his weapons and equipment, then disengaged his passive camouflage unit. Once everyone's status LEDs had turned green, he gave the order to execute, and led the way down into the Talus Basin. Their gulch cut through the rim about 500 meters above the basin floor, making for a steep descent. Given that it had rained that morning, the Le Chatelierite slopes were not as slippery as he had expected, perhaps because the sand granules in the mountains were angular enough to provide traction rather than deny it. Even had they wanted to, there was no way to hide the excavation machines as they advanced toward the shaft. But Blue Team had unchallenged air superiority over the entire basin, so John didn't even attempt a concealed approach. He simply sprang from stone to stone and boulder to boulder, relying on extreme range and his erratic changes of direction to protect him from any hand-carried artillery. And his leg injury wasn't even throbbing. He covered the first kilometer in two minutes, taking no hostile fire at all. It didn't take the Grey Guards long to see Blue Team coming. They began to spend less time moving behind cover and more dodging through the open, some even risking short jump jet hops. John saw 12 Jirulhanai go down in half as many seconds, but they were also more willing to exchange fire, and a trio managed to score shock rifle hits on a low-flying broadsword. The EMP took down its shielding, and the electrolasers gouged long slashes through both wings and the skin of its fuselage. The wounded craft pulled up early and wobbled out of sight over the basin rim. By then, John had closed to within a kilometer of the shaft, with Fred advancing on his right flank and Linda on the left.
but the surviving Grey Guards were even closer, no more than 500 meters from their side. He estimated their number at 30, though their sporadic movements into and out of cover made it hard to be certain. The operators on the surface lift abandoned their workstations at the site of the Spartans and rushed to set a defensive line to screen their equipment. As before, there were only ten of them, three Kigyar and seven Ungoy, all armed with plasma pistols. John marked them for Linda to eliminate and continued toward the shaft. A surge of stone and gravel rose from the access shaft and hovered above it for a moment, then reversed direction and sank slowly back the way it had come. John didn't know whether the reversal was prompted by Blue Team's imminent arrival or whether the keepers below had finished their excavation. Either way, it wasn't a good sign. He and Fred were 500 meters from the shaft now, but Linda had dropped off to set up her SRS-99 S5. The Grey Guards opposite them were less than 300 meters from their side of the shaft, which meant in range of beam and shock rifles. Knowing the talus would make it almost impossible to spot a marksman preparing to open fire, John and Fred stooped down, using boulders for cover whenever possible. Linda's sniper rifle boomed four times, taking out the three Kigyar in front of the pirate lift and igniting a grunt methane tank. The rest of the Ungoy abandoned their positions and fled. Ungoy were smarter than they looked. More than could be said about the Grey Guards. They were only a hundred meters from the shaft now, but ten of them had practically crushed their jump jet controls and were fifty meters in the air, scattering toward the north side of the shaft. John wasn't sure what they were trying to do. Maybe flank Blue Team, or follow the Ungoy's example and withdraw? But they were all rising on steep trajectories that were going to keep them off the ground for several seconds. The broadswords instantly swept in, swinging behind the jumpers and opening up with their Ali 35s. Then the rest of the Grey Guards hit their thrusters, launching themselves in low trajectories straight at the shaft. It was a classic sacrifice diversion beautifully executed, using part of their number to pull the broadswords out of position so the rest of the force could maneuver. At first, John thought the jumpers were moving up to establish a defensive perimeter around the shaft and would use their next jump to cross it. He couldn't have been more wrong. By the time the Grey Guards touched down, John and Fred were a hundred meters from the rim. Both were on their knees behind boulders, aiming their MA-40s at the apex of the lowest arc the Jirulhanai could use to cross the shaft. The broadswords were over the north side of the basin, wheeling around to start a return pass that would put them on target as the jumpers tried to cross. Linda's sniper rifle was already booming as she fired across the shaft, using two rounds per target, the first to overload the shields, the second to punch through the armor and kill the target. She put two warriors down before they had taken ten steps. But these were all jet jumpers. They should have been back in the air after only a few steps and they weren't. John thought perhaps they wanted to be closer before launching into their next bound. It was a big shaft, so large that the last time he had been here, he'd been riding in a Covenant dropship that had flown straight down it. If the enemy jumped too early, they might not make it all the way across. He held his fire, waiting to catch them in the air where they wouldn't be able to dodge behind boulders. Linda opened fire again and killed two more jumpers, the rest stayed on the ground, sprinting forward, covering the last twenty meters in two seconds. The first broadsword let loose, filling the air above the shaft with thirty-five millimeter rounds. The Grey Guards weren't there. They were now leaping into the shaft, 
using their jump jets to push them toward the gravity field in the center. So much for that part of the plan. John dropped his aim and blasted away at the descending jumpers, his rounds deflecting off flashing shields as the Jirohanai plunged into the darkness below. Chapter 20 1348 hours, October 12th, 2559, Military Calendar Castle Base Access Shaft, Chongrad Region Highland Mountains, Continent Epos, Planet Reach John jumped first, leaping into the shaft chest down so he could watch for enemy plasma fire rising out of the impregnable darkness. The nano-braided titanium cable clipped to the back of his Mjolnir went taut almost instantly, and his forward momentum faded as the winch resistance kicked in. He dropped ten meters, simultaneously swinging back toward the shaft wall. He hit feet first, and sprang back toward the pirate lift's gravity field in the center of the shaft, dragging another ten meters of cable off the spool and dropped another ten meters, before the winch resistance brought him back toward the wall again. It was called fast winching, and it was John's least favorite method of tactical descent. Instead of controlling his own rate of drop, a soldier had to rely on a winch operator, which created an opportunity for missed signals. But it sure beat flat-out falling, and it was a good alternative to dangling a rappel line down on an enemy's head. John was in the middle rig, with Linda fast winching 20 meters to his left and Fred 20 meters to his right. Even with Kelly still on the surface protecting special crew and the winches proper, that spacing was a lot tighter than he would have liked. But geometry was an implacable foe. Measuring 40 meters across, the shaft had a circumference of just over 125 meters. If they spaced themselves any farther apart, the two Spartans on the end would be in each other's field of fire. As they continued to descend, the darkness grew more enshrouding wrapping them in a veil of grays and purples. John's onboard computer was tracking their progress by counting the number of 10-meter bounds. His HUD showed they had already dropped 200 meters. Already. Castle Base was two kilometers down, and John saw no hint of keeper operations below. He didn't know whether that was worrisome, or whether the darkness meant anything at all. 1,800 meters was a long drop. Even if the entire floor of the shaft was lit up as bright as day, from so far above, the glow would be smaller than the point of a needle. John wouldn't see it with his naked eye, and he wasn't sure his helmet optics would be able to detect it either. His onboard computer confirmed it would not. They dropped through 400 meters, and the blackness swallowed them completely. John could no longer see the pylum in his own hands, and when he craned his neck, the daylight spilling down from the collar of the shaft had disappeared. John activated his dual-mode night vision system. Earlier, while Chief Mukai was setting up the fast winches, John and the other Spartans had compared battle vids. At least 13 Grey Guards had jumped into the shaft 20 minutes earlier, at the end of the firefight, to take it. In all likelihood, the keepers already at the bottom had adjusted the pirate lift's gravity field to catch and gently lower the Grey Guards to the bottom. Now those same Jirohanai would be down there with an unknown number of keepers, all ready to pounce. John had no intention of making it easy on them by activating his helmet lamp. Blue Team would be fighting strictly NVS, and maybe that would give them the tactical advantage they needed to win. Maybe. Those Grey Guards were definitely trouble. 
ferocious, disciplined, willing to make tactical sacrifices, not the qualities John liked to see in his Jirulhanai foes. That was the reason he was carrying a pylum instead of his MA-40, and why Fred had his spanker and Linda had her SRS-99-S5. The three Spartans needed weapons capable of punching through energy-shielded power armor in one or two strikes. They passed 600 meters in depth, then 800. The pirate lift's gravity field was just visible in John's NVS, a column of purple radiance so faint it almost seemed imaginary. The walls of the shaft were purple as well, but brighter and more substantial, shifting to red as the team descended deeper into the planet's bowels and the stone grew warmer. At a thousand meters, there was still no hint of the enemy below, and John began to readjust his thinking. In theory, there were work crews and equipment down there emitting a lot of waste heat. At the least, his thermal optics should have been picking up a pinpoint of infrared radiance. A gravity field didn't always radiate invisible wavelengths, but the emitter pad from which it issued usually did so brightly. Be alert, John said over Team Com. We should be seeing something by now, and we're not. A sniper ambush? Linda asked. That's one possibility, John said. When he returned to the wall and sprang off again, he began to vary the angle of his launch, doing what he could to make himself a difficult target. We should be in range of their shock and beam rifles by now. What's the other possibility? Fred asked. That they're already in Castle Base. No, Fred said. I mean the other other possibility. I was saving that for last, John said. They were passing 1,200 meters, still with no activity below, so he and Fred were likely coming to the same conclusion, the one they had discussed during the Pelican ride into the Highland Mountains. Because if you're thinking what I suspect you are, you could be right. Yep. If I was wrong, we'd be seeing a purple glow by now, Fred said. Those pirate lifts are powerful. Might I inquire what Blue 2 could be right about? Kelly asked. She was still on the surface, about ten meters back from the shaft edge, operating John's winch. But there was a comm repeater on the rim, so everyone on the team had full communication. That's not something I'd want to miss. The keepers, John said. It's beginning to look like we can stop making the prudent assumption. Whatever they're after, I don't think it's in Castle Base. Then why did they follow us across Aranyi Basin? Major von Hout asked. He was on Fred's winch. And why would they care if we reach it? Wish I knew, John replied. But if we're not seeing any light at Castle Base level, then the keepers must be interested in something below Castle Base. There is no must be, Linda said. It is so. My rangefinder has found the shaft floor. Two thousand meters. From here. That put the shaft bottom far lower than anticipated a full 800 meters below the entrance to Castle Base. No way the keepers had accidentally over-excavated by that much. They're going to the installation, Fred said. God damn, they've been going to the installation the whole time. The very same forerunner installation that the Covenant had seized seven years ago, the one they had removed the top of Menachite Mountain to reach the one where Dr. Halsey had captured the slipspace crystal the aliens had been trying to recover. Yeah, John said. Any guesses what they're after? You and Blue Three know that place a lot better than I do. Do I look like I'm Dr. Halsey? Fred replied. Let's just assume it's bad.
bad enough to change our mission? Without bothering to wait for an answer, Linda said, The assets are still our only priorities. Whatever the keepers are doing, it is status incidental. Linda was noting the situation mattered only to the extent that it impacted the mission. Action could be taken to prevent the keepers from interfering or to collect intelligence, but any other involvement with them was to be avoided. Acknowledged, John said. Fifteen hundred meters down. About five hundred meters below and directly opposite him, John's NVS showed a tiny arch of blackness in the shaft's curving maroon wall. The entrance to Castle Base. We'll gather any intelligence we come across, John continued. But right now, only one thing matters about the Keepers. We still need their pirate lift? Fred asked. Right, John said. We carry on as before, no matter what they're up to. There's just one problem with that, Chief Mukai said. She was on the surface with Kelly and Von Hout, operating Linda's winch. Blue Four's rangefinder marked the shaft floor at another 2,000 meters, when you were already at 800. I'm not seeing the problem, John said. The shaft is 2,800 meters deep, Mukai continued. The winch spools only have 2,500 meters of cable, so you're 300 meters short, John finished. Between their Mjolnir's energy shields and hydrostatic gel layer, the Spartans could probably survive a 300-meter fall. But the gel would overpressurize to protect them from the impact, and after they hit, they would be immobilized for a few seconds until it depressurized. With their shields down, they would be almost literally sitting ducks. Problem acknowledged, John said. We'll find a way. He was still fast-winching down the shaft, bounding off the wall at different angles, when his NVS infrared showed a trio of bulky red figures lurking in the dark arch of the castle base tunnel. Blue three, slow winch, John said over Team Com. Engage enemy. Fred and Linda were already firing, Norn Fong booming to his left, the spanker flashing on his right. John did a pendulum traverse, trying to run across the wall sideways to avoid firing through the gravity field and having his pylum missile deflected. By the time he was clear, Linda had downed one of the figures. Then his NVS went white as Fred's rocket detonated inside the tunnel mouth. Unable to designate his target, John held his fire and started across the wall in the other direction, his rate of descent now considerably slowed as Kelly increased the winch resistance. As the blast flash drained from his faceplate, John saw a plasma incendiary arc out of the tunnel mouth toward him, then deflect upward as it crossed the gravity field. The incendiary splashed against the wall above. He couldn't see exactly where, because he was rigged to look down the shaft, but it must have been close. His shields flickered blue, and white cinders of plasma rained past all around. Then John was following the cinders, his stomach floating as he plunged into the darkness. Blue leader! Even over Team Com, Kelly's alarm was obvious. John! He was too busy trying to save himself to answer. Some of the plasma incendiary must have hit his cable and burned through the nanobraided titanium. Now he was running down the wall, trying to keep his feet under him so he didn't lose attitude control and go into a tumble. After three steps, or maybe it was eight, who could tell at this point, John finally felt his left boot land flat enough to generate some power. Still falling, he launched himself toward the gravity field. His half-heeled thigh felt like it had taken a Vulcan round but the myosin mesh holding his quadriceps together did its job. 
He angled down through 15 meters of darkness and slid into the pale gravity field in good position, belly down and body flat. His eyes bulged and his organs sank as he decelerated, but the pressure eased a heartbeat later. Then John was half floating, watching the shaft walls drift upward as he continued to descend, now far more slowly. He could hear Fred and Linda not quite yelling on Team Com, but the gravity field interfered with the comm waves, and the conversation was too broken up to follow or join. Besides, John was descending past the entrance to Castle Base. He could see the remains of the Jirohanai ambush team splattered around the tunnel mouth, strewn across the floor and hanging from the walls and ceiling. But there was a large figure in power armor rising out of the rubble and back, moving forward to engage. John brought up his pylum to fire, but he was still floating, and the motion spun him away from his target. By the time he swung his left arm around to counter the spin, he had already descended past the tunnel floor and could no longer see the threat. He'd have to do this the hard way. Carefully, John pointed his left hand and fired the grapple shot on his forearm. The grappling hook disappeared into the tunnel mouth, arcing over the bottom edge. As he continued to sink, the line began to feed back toward him. He feared the grapple wasn't going to catch. Then his arm jerked upward, pulling him upright and out of the gravity field. John swung through the darkness and slammed into the shaft wall, a hostile symbol already appearing on his motion tracker. It was almost atop his own position, blinking blue to indicate it was directly above him. John could have guessed that. He raised the pylum one-handed and laid the launching tube alongside the wall. A massive Jirohanai hand reached over the lip of the tunnel floor, following the grapple shot line downward. John fired the first missile, his faceplate going white as the propellant burned the darkness from the shaft. No detonation. A moment later, as the white drained from his night vision again, he saw the Jirohanai's other hand snaking over the lip holding a flat-faced spike revolver, swinging the square barrel toward John's grappler line. More or less. It was hard to aim at what you weren't looking at. John held his own fire. Sooner or later, the Jirohanai would have to slip up and look at what he was trying to kill. A trio of finger-length spikes shot from the revolver's muzzle, missing to either side of the line, bouncing off the wall, and vanishing into 800 meters of darkness. Whatever they hit at the bottom there wouldn't be much of it left. Kelly's voice sounded over Team Com. Blue leader, what the blazing hell! Clearly his pylum missile had exited the top of the shaft. Status! John flashed green, but said nothing, and kept his eye on the shooter's pistol barrel, ready to move if the muzzle dropped any farther toward him. Instead, a Jirohanai helmet pushed into view. First, its decorative brow veins showing cool blue in the light-gathering mode of John's NVS, then the ridge along the crown gleaming green. The NVS switched to infrared as the brow panel glowed dull yellow, then finally came the eyes, burning a bright, angry red. John fired the second pylum directly into the right one. The shockwave snapped his own head back, and he felt the heat of the blast through the titanium shell of his helmet. His faceplate went white, again, and then he was falling, again. Dropping feet first along the shaft wall, Kelly's alarmed voice sounding in his ears. Blue leader, status, she demanded, and I want more than a flash this time. John flashed amber, but said nothing. 
He was too busy fighting to recover attitude control. Something heavy clunked against his helmet and nearly sent him cartwheeling. He carefully extended his arm and the pylum and brought himself back under control. The blast flash had faded from his faceplate, and he saw that he was caught inside a shower of rocks and helmet pieces, all of it glowing bright red in his NVS. Fred and Linda were now a couple of hundred meters below, still fast-winching down the opposite side of the gravity field, firing spanker rockets and M232 armor-piercing rounds into the darkness at the bottom of the shaft. John assessed their target and saw a pinpoint of bright purple light ringed by thread-thin streaks of blue and white. The gravity lift, surrounded by its defenders, keepers of the One Freedom, launching plasma incendiaries and firing electro-lasers. That's it, Kelly announced. I'm coming down. Acknowledged, John said. How far it was to the bottom of the shaft now, he had no idea, but it didn't seem nearly far enough. And make it fast. Thanks to his cadet jump training days, John knew terminal velocity for an object with the mass of a Spartan in Mjolnir armor on reach was about 150 meters per second, which meant he had about five seconds before taking out a bunch of keepers the hard way. No time to screw around, stabilizing his freefall position. He brought his empty pylum to port arms and pulled his legs up toward his chest, falling even faster now. Fred and Linda flashing past on the other side of the gravity field, dangling from their winch lines like spiders on threads. Oh, damn, Fred said on Teamcom. Not now, not here. No, not here, John answered, and not yet. He threw his head forward, rolling himself out of a feet-first vertical fall into a face-down horizontal drop, then stomp-kicked the shaft wall, launching himself back across the darkness toward the gravity field. When John re-entered the field, he decelerated even harder than before, his heart crashing down into his sternum and his tongue pushing forward between his teeth. By now he was so close to the bottom of the shaft that the pirate lift appeared as large as his palm. It was protected by a handful of gray guards and a bunch of keepers, all still distant and tiny, but illuminated brightly enough in the gravity pad's violet glow that he could make out the weapons they were holding far too many shock rifles and plasma incendiary launchers. The amount of discernible detail suggested he was around 300 meters above them, right at the maximum fast-winching depth. And most of the aliens seemed to be focused on Fred and Linda, who had been raining death on their heads for more than a few seconds. The Grey Guards hit their jump jets, trying to charge the Spartan attackers by flying up the shaft, but it was a poor strategy. Fred put an M-19 rocket into the leader's chest, creating a fireball that the others had to maneuver past. And Linda took out two more by putting her rounds through their propellant packs. The rest retreated to the shaft floor. When Fred used his second rocket to send several Kigyar flying across the shaft floor, John engaged his passive camouflage unit and held his fire. If he could get close enough before the enemy noticed him in the grav field, he could drop into their midst without having to worry about a gel lockdown and keep them occupied long enough for Fred and Linda to down-climb the shaft walls. Or something like that. John confirmed that the M7 submachine gun was still on its mag mount, but was unable to perform a weapons check. While he couldn't distinguish the alien's facial features yet, he could see their arms, and even their hands when an arm moved away from the body. 200 meters. He was descending on them from the dark. Still, sooner or later, he would be illuminated by the lift pad's purple glow.
and when that happened, the keepers would realize that the Grey Guards they'd left higher up at Castle Base weren't going to be jumping into the gravity field. They would try to shut down the lift, letting John freefall the rest of the way. He would need to keep them away from the controls and have the pylum reloaded. Fred dropped another spanker round on the heads of three Sangheili, while Linda downed two Jirohanai keepers. Only three Grey Guards and seven keepers remaining, and John was pretty confident of that count, since they were all running for cover, either behind the gravity lift's legs or among the boulders resting against the wall at the base of the shaft. Fred's voice came over Team Com. No more cable. End of the line. Hang tight, John said. I'm working on something. Just keep their attention. Affirmative, Fred said. But it could be with rocks. I'm down to my last set of tubes. Save them for when you can make it count, John said. All I need is to keep them looking your way. That we can arrange, Linda said. Her sniper rifle boomed twice, and a Jirohanai keeper slumped over the boulder he was hidden behind. But the aliens had their own plan. Instead of using the rocks for cover, the last six Jirohanai, three keepers and three gray guards, grabbed man-sized boulders charging back toward the gravity lift. They were covered by a trio of Kigyar firing beam rifles from behind one of the lift's massive support legs, right where the controls were located. John didn't have a shot on the Kigyar, at least not one that didn't risk destroying the controls. And Blue Team wasn't trying to capture the pirate lift just for the hell of it. They needed those controls intact. Change of plan, John said. Still in the grav field, he was close enough now to see individual faces, around a hundred meters. Linda, take out the Kigyar riflemen. Fred, the brutes. Fred's spanker roared, and a rocket dropped down from the darkness, taking the first gray guard in the flank. Linda's rifle boomed, and a Kigyar head came apart in a spray of blood and bone. John was dropping into the purple glow of the lift pad now, so he wasn't going to remain hidden much longer, especially not with five Jirohanai rushing to board the gravity lift. There were two gray guards left. John targeted the one in front and fired, only to see the missile deflect as it crossed out of the gravity field. It punched into the wall and blew mud and gravel across the floor. He corrected and fired again, this time catching his target just as he was raising the boulder he carried to shield himself. The round's shaped charge punched through the stone and sent a jet of superheated gore shooting through the backplate of the guard's armor. No sooner had the charge landed... Then John's stomach sank hard, and the lift pad began to recede below him. The surviving Jirohanai, one gray guard and three keepers, dumped their boulders onto the lift pad, and as the boulders began to rise toward John, climbed into the gravity field under them. Hostiles coming up, John shouted, with their own cover. He started to reload the pylum, then realized that with the enemy on their way up, now was the perfect time for him to head down. It was crazy, but no worse than what Lieutenant Chapoff had done taking them up Black Iron Gorge. And John had his Mjolnir armor. He slapped the rocket launcher onto a mag mount and took a grenade in each hand, then threw himself into a somersault position, tumbling toward the edge of the gravity field. On his first roll, he glimpsed two plasma incendiaries and a pair of electrolaser bolts shooting up from between the rising boulders. The electrolasers hit almost simultaneously the double EMP burst taking down his shields in a microsecond. The first plasma incendiary shot past harmlessly, but the second glanced off his right knee and burst. Most of the incendiary sprayed back into the gravity field where John had been a moment before, 
but part of it had impacted his armor, charring it so badly that white-hot cinders flaked off his greave onto his sabaton. He heard metal popping and sizzling as the incendiary's heat melted through the Mjolnir's titanium alloy shell, then felt the burn blisters rising on his shin and foot. But there was no time for damage assessment, because when he went into his next roll, he left the gravity field and felt himself fully plunging. Advancing, John said into Team Com. He thumbed the grenade fuses and tossed them toward the boulders at the base of the shaft. Cover. Cover in ten, Kelly responded. You just came into view. John doubted that this battle was going to last another ten seconds, but no sooner had Kelly spoken than he rolled through his second somersault and realized she would be the only help coming. The Grey Guard and his three Keeper companions were ascending fast, using their floating boulder field as cover while they launched plasma incendiaries and electrolaser bolts toward Fred and Linda. The two Spartans were returning fire as best they could, but it was a lot harder to account for gravity deflection while firing into the field at a target under cover than it was firing back out at a target hanging from a thread. John grabbed the M7 submachine gun off its mag mount, but by the time he was ready to fire, the lift was already a hundred meters above him. The Grey Guard hit his jetpack thrusters and moved to the edge of the gravity field, where he would have a better angle of fire, and launched a plasma incendiary toward Fred. Impact alarms started to chime inside John's helmet. He laid the M7 on a torso mount and tucked his chin to his chest, then slapped out, just as he had learned to do in his hand-to-hand -hand combat training here on Reach, all those years ago driving his palms and forearms down onto the stone, twisting his hips ever so slightly so his left thigh came down on its outer side and the sole of his right foot landed flat on the ground, spreading out the force of the impact along as much of his body as possible. Despite everything, it still felt like he'd been hit by a speeding warthog. And the gel lockdown only made it worse, squeezing John as tight as a pressure forge, holding every muscle rigid, every joint immobile. His ribs ached, and his internal organs felt like they'd been compressed into a specimen jar. He couldn't even breathe. All John could do was lie there waiting for the pressure to bleed off, staring up the shaft into the gravity field, where he could barely make out two tiny streams of electrolaser dashes flashing through the darkness toward Linda's position. Her SRS-99-S5 cracked twice, and then there was only one stream. At the edge of the gravity field, a tiny figure was dangling beneath the fast-rising hulk of a Jirohanai. John opened a magnification window and saw it was Fred, hanging five meters beneath the last gray guard and rising fast. The guard had dropped his plasma launcher and was digging at his collar with both hands, trying in vain to free himself from the grapple shot line Fred had looped around his throat. As Fred drew even with the Jirohanai's feet, he pulled a combat knife from his shoulder sheath. He reared back, and once he could reach high enough, drove the blade into the back of the Jirohanai's neck. John didn't see what happened next, because a hostile appeared on his motion detector, approaching from the direction of the pirate lift. The lockdown pressure was still bleeding off. Releasing it instantly would cause nitrogen embolisms, but he could actually breathe again. Another couple of seconds and he'd be able to defend himself. He shifted his gaze toward the approaching hostile, and found a ragged Kigyar limping toward him from the gravity lift, while a second Kigyar covered him from the operator's station. The limper's armor was shredded, with blood oozing from half a dozen shrapnel wounds, and the quills on the back of his head had been seared to stumps. 
He carried a carbine in one hand, which he kept pointed at John as he approached. How you know? His speech was passable, certainly better than John attempting Kigyar. It was the Sumans, yes. Tell Tawati now, he save you. Humans? John could talk now, and it wouldn't be long before he could do more than that. Know what? Nasty demon. Tawati circled around John's feet, then kicked him in his plasma-burned greave, and the whole leg moved. So did John's hips, when he rolled them to check his range of motion. The Kigyar pointed the carbine at John's knee. Maybe your answer after Tawati blow leg off. I don't think so. John swept his leg into Tawati's ankles, at the same time bringing his other leg up in a roundhouse kick that folded the Kigyar in two and launched him into the wall. It probably wasn't necessary, but John snatched the M7 off his torso mount and ran a burst up Tawati's center line. A whistle sounded somewhere behind him, maybe Tawati's partner squawking in alarm as he prepared to fire. John rolled back toward the gravity lift. The boom of a shotgun blast and the second Kigyar flew out from behind the operator's station and dropped to the muddy floor, a massive crater in his chest where an eight-gauge slug had punched through his armor. Blue three, that you? When Kelly's status LED flashed green, John did a quick scan for other threats, then asked, Blue two, blue four, status? Both flashed green, then Fred said, A few scrapes and burns, all threats eliminated, but I just passed Castle Base and I'm still going up. We'll take care of that ASAP, John said. Blue four. I have no problems that can't be repaired, Linda said. Request help descending. I'm in no mood for lockdown. Acknowledged, John said. Wait there. We'll use the lift. He rose and looked across the pad of the gravity lift to where Kelly was still dangling from a fast winch line, her body only two meters above the floor. Her armor was a little muddy, but otherwise, she looked none the worse for wear. Thanks for the cover, he said. Thank you for the diversion, Kelly said. He was so busy watching you, I had to whistle for his attention. Glad to be of service, John said. He pointed at the nano-braided titanium cable from which she was hanging. I thought the spools only had sheet bent, Kelly said. After your I'd-rather-fly trick, we had some spare cable. Mukai, John asked. Who else? Mukai replied. They were speaking over Teamcom, so she and Von Hout were able to hear the whole conversation. You have a problem with that? Not at all, John said. Nano-braided titanium cable was supposed to be micro-spliced, not joined with knots, but John wasn't about to tell the crew chief how to do her job. It worked. Glad you agree. As Mukai spoke, Kelly began to descend the last two meters to the shaft floor. Now, if you're done playing with the aliens down there, we have a job to do. Acknowledged. John activated his helmet lamps and circled around the gravity lift toward Kelly, limping slightly on both legs, his right shin and foot in searing agony despite the biofoam injections, his left quadriceps cramping so hard he wondered if the myosin mesh had come loose. Still, he was in better shape than the enemy. The shaft floor was a morass of mud, blood, and body parts essentially a massive, gore-filled sump. But when John ran his helmet lamps over the packed mud walls, he could still discern hints of the ancient Forerunner installation he had seen once before, when he dropped in to rescue Dr. Halsey and her companions seven years earlier. The soaring arches and looming balconies, 
They were all still there, just packed like fossils into untold tons of mud and gravel that had since washed down into the shaft. And buried somewhere beneath all that rubble was something the keepers desperately wanted, something worth working with the banished to acquire. Certainly that Kigyar, Tawadi, had hinted as much. John couldn't even begin to imagine what it might be. UNSC intelligence had noted that both factions were enamored of forerunner technology, but for different reasons. The Keepers valued it solely for religious reasons, becoming one with the forerunners. The Banished just wanted the power and wealth it brought. What could they be looking for that served both purposes? And why now? After the fall of Reach, the Covenant had been in sole control of this world and certainly had ample time to strip the underground installation of any Forerunner artifacts. What could they possibly have left behind that would justify the effort that both the Keepers and the Banished were putting into recovering it? John couldn't afford to dwell on it any longer, not now, when so much else was at stake. This was a mystery Blue Team had not been assigned to solve, and one they had no time to investigate. The best he could do was record what he was seeing and let what currently remained of the Office of Naval Intelligence worry about it later. So when John happened across a freshly excavated passage running northward from the shaft, he took note of it solely as a liability to be secured and paused only long enough to peer inside. Large enough for the Jirulhanai to walk down comfortably, the passage appeared to be many hundreds of meters long, running as straight as an arrow until it vanished into the gloom. No doubt that was where the rest of the keepers had gone, and steps would have to be taken to make sure they didn't return to interrupt Blue Team's primary mission. John stepped inside the tunnel and listened. It was quiet, but maybe, just maybe, he could hear voices murmuring at the far end. Kelly's voice came over Teamcom. Ready when you are, Blue Leader. I could use an observer. John came out of the tunnel to find Kelly already standing on the pirate lift's operator's platform, her hands inside the holographic control columns. Over the decades, Blue Team had learned to operate a lot of different kinds of Covenant equipment, including various types of gravity lifts. Kelly's body posture projected the confidence of being able to use the pirate lift as well, which was a good thing, because that was how John intended to lower the excavation machines to castle base level. On my way. John put his M7 on a mag mount, then started to weave toward her past dozens of alien corpses and rocket craters. Let's finish the damn mission. Chapter 21 1820 hours, October 12th, 2559. Military calendar. Castle base. Chongrad region. Highland mountains. Continent Epos. Planet Reach. The fighting was done. At least, John hoped it was, because Blue Team was down to a 52% effectiveness rating. He had ported so much painkiller into his legs that it felt like he had a pair of stumps hanging off the LHD seat. Fred had lost his shields, his HUD, his weapon sync targeting system, and his mag mounts to electrolaser EMP bursts. Linda had lost her long-range optics and had half her helmet melted by an incendiary round. She had some singed hair and second-degree burns where the heat had been too great, but the incendiary hadn't gone all the way through, and she would be fine with a little medical attention. 
Norn Fong was also going to need a lot of TLC before she made any two-kilometer shots with it again. Only Kelly was above 80% functionality, which was why she was the one on foot, standing in an open doorway, using a telescoping long bar to knock down loose concrete and rock from what used to be the ceiling of Dr. Catherine Halsey's office and laboratory suite. After capturing the keeper's pirate lift, Blue Team had moved it into place below the castle base entrance and utilized it to lower the excavation machines. By the time they accomplished that, they had an ODST support company assigned to discourage any interference. The keepers and banished had left them alone, but even so, it had taken four hours of drilling, blasting, and mucking to clear the half-kilometer tunnel and maze of corridors leading into Omega Wing. Now, they just had to get to Halsey's ultra-secret vault, which was hidden inside an incubation cabinet on the opposite side of what used to be a two-room suite, now a tangle of beams sagging beneath a billion-ton jumble of boulders and broken concrete. John had the feeling that if they moved the wrong piece, it would all come crashing down on them. He lowered the LHD's bucket onto the floor and shut off the engine. Kelly stopped her work and looked back toward the LHD, her helmet cocked to one side. John motioned for her to lower the long bar. Stand down. He climbed out of the LHD seat. After giving his numbed legs a moment to steady, he stepped into the doorway beside her and looked back up the corridor toward the drilling jumbo. You two, Blue Four, turn it off. Linda obeyed, then stepped off the operator's platform. The headlamps on the left side of her helmet had been melted along with its outer layer of titanium alloy, so she looked a bit ghoulish as she approached through the darkness. You're thinking it will be safer to clear by hand? Kelly asked. Negative, John said. I'm thinking it might be safer to not clear it at all. Linda came up and stood with John and Kelly in the doorway, staring into the wreckage. In the tunnel, the boulders and rubble had been packed as tight as a brick wall. Here, the fallen beams had created a maze of rubble pockets and triangular tunnels. There was no guarantee that the maze would connect to the incubation cabinet hiding the entrance to Dr. Halsey's secret vault. But there was no guarantee that it didn't either. And it was about time for something to go right on this mission. John refused to believe that after all they'd been through since arriving on Reach, since coming home, his luck had simply run out. So they all just stood in place, seeking a visual on a route through the outer office and into the circular lab room where Halsey had done so much of her thinking and experimenting. The trio of Spartans were the only ones actually inside the ruins of Castle Base. The rest of the team was performing support operations, Mukai operating the pirate lift at the bottom of the shaft, and Major Von Hout operating the supplemental lift up on the surface. Fred was on patrol inside the keeper tunnel that ran deeper into the forerunner installation, hoping to take a prisoner and gather a little intel on the enemy's intentions. Mukai and Von Hout each had a platoon of ODSTs with them to provide security, but John didn't think the ODSTs would be called on to fight. While Blue Team was busy excavating Castle Base, the word had come through on comms that, after some fierce fighting, the UNSC had taken firm control of the entire Reitet Valley, blocking both ends of Koldush Canyon. To recover possession of the access shaft, the enemy would need to mount a major operation. And by the time they could do that, John intended to have completed the mission and be long gone aboard a pelican taking them and the assets Dr. Halsey needed 
back to the infinity. If they could ever get to the assets, that is. Finally, Kelly said, There, I see it. She removed all of her weapons and extraneous gear and laid them in the LHD bucket, then checked to make sure she had a full set of spoofers with her. Linda started to do the same, but John waved her off and pointed to her already compromised helmet. You're the ready reserve, he said. If something goes wrong, then you come in. Fred's voice came over Team Com. To maintain contact, they had placed comm repeaters at key locations in the shaft and inside Castle Base. You want me to pull out and back you up? he asked. Human voices seldom carried through a Mjolnir helmet, but he was speaking in a hushed tone anyway. It never hurt to be safe. I'm 700 meters into this tunnel. Still haven't seen anything. Negative, Kelly said. We'll have the assets and be on our way out before you get here. We will, John asked. Quite confident, Kelly said. Or we'll be dead. Either way, Fred won't be of much help. No offense. You heard the Lady Blue, too. John was already stripping his own weapons and non-essential gear. And you know Oni is going to have a million questions about what the Keepers and the Banished are looking for. Give it another fifteen minutes, then withdraw. Fred acknowledged the order with a green status flash. Kelly looked over her shoulder at John. When he nodded, she stepped through the door, and light began to flood from the indirect illumination panels in the walls. Kelly stopped just across the threshold, her helmet swiveling as if she had just been ambushed and didn't know from where. That I was not expecting. She turned left and started to crawl up a beam toward a huge granite boulder that had pushed through the concrete ceiling. But I'll take it. Now they were down to business. In the initial mission briefing, Dr. Halsey had informed Blue Team that her suite had its own fusion reactor and security system. So the lighting made sense. But it did seem remarkable that the automatic systems were still functioning after being buried for seven years in a damp, dirty environment. John watched Kelly climb for a moment, both giving her space to move and trying to make sense of her strategy. The five-by-ten-meter office remained full of long shadows and pockets of darkness, but the contrast made it easier to pick out patterns in the wreckage, and he still didn't see what she was trying to do. As Kelly went higher, the upper end of the beam rocked downward under her weight, and a boulder on the end tipped toward her, until John put a foot on the beam's lower end and pushed it back down. Thank you. Kelly ascended until she was just below the boulder, then stretched out on her belly and started to crawl through a meter-high space that ran diagonally toward the center of the room. And John finally saw it. About halfway across the room, the path Kelly had selected ended at a block of concrete that was resting in the notch between a pair of crossed beams. Move the block, and it would be a simple matter to drop down under the beams and crawl the rest of the way through the outer office into the lab. He motioned Linda to step on the end of the beam for him, then climbed and caught up to Kelly at the block. Together they lay on their backs and pushed up on the block, bringing a small avalanche of head-sized stones raining down on their armor. Then John remained holding the block while Kelly slipped into the crawlway below, rising onto her knees and keeping it in place while he followed. After that, it was a mere belly crawl under the beams to the lab. As they entered, a green glow began to shine through the interstitial spaces to their right. John turned to see a small holographic figure, or 
Rather, what appeared to be the hem of a small holographic figure's robe hovering above the corner of a collapsed desk. He tried to push a ragged boulder aside so he could get a better look, but succeeded only in bringing down a cascade of concrete chunks that convinced him to move on. A few meters later, the glow reappeared on their left. An oval eye with no pupil or lashes stared at him through a thumb-sized tunnel in the rubble. We've got company, he said. I think. Company? Linda asked. Do you need weapons? Negative, John replied. It's an avatar, I think. An AI avatar? Fred said over Team Com. You sure you don't want me to pull out now? Fred's concern was very much warranted. Castle Base had been deserted for seven years, and smart AIs almost always went rampant after seven years in service, which was why UNSC regulations called for them to be destroyed as they reached that threshold. Had the protocol been followed for Cortana, Blue Team's current mission would not have been needed, and a lot of lives would have been spared. I'm sure, Blue too, John said. What could you do? Shoot it? There is no way it's an AI, Kelly said. Fred and I were with Dr. Halsey when she abandoned Castle Base. We saw her activate the fail-safe destruction protocol at the same time she initiated the base demolition. Halsey was terrified of her work falling into Covenant hands. Then why are we back here on Reach and nearly getting killed trying to retrieve something she left behind? Linda asked. Fair point, Kelly replied. It still doesn't mean she would risk leaving an AI where the Covenant could have captured it, and the... Um, items we're after are different. Perhaps she suspected she might need them one day, and knew they would be useless to the Covenant even if they did capture them. Which she knew couldn't happen, John added. Don't forget the self-destruct protection on this stuff. How could I ever? Kelly asked. She stopped crawling and shined her helmet lamps on the bottom of a black platinum door that had been anodized with a nanoconductive film. I do believe this looks like the incubator cabinet she described. John peered over her shoulder, and just for a moment, saw a pair of eyes with no pupils looking back at him. Did you see that? Apparently not, Kelly replied. Should I be concerned? No idea, John said. It was the, uh, whatever it is. Just two eyes watching us. Kelly was silent for a moment, then finally said, Perhaps it was just Halsey's idea of a joke when she worked here. You know how she is? Sure. A joke. Let's go with that for now. He rolled onto his back and studied the rubble above them for a moment, then pointed at a sagging I-beam caked with chunks of concrete. On top of it rested a granite boulder the size of a warthog. What lay atop the boulder was anyone's guess. If we can raise that beam high enough to get under... I might be able to squat press it and buy you enough room to open the door. With your leg wounds? Kelly shook her helmet. I don't think so. It has to be me, John said. You're the one with the spoofers. Kelly sighed into her comms. I should have brought Linda. It's not too late, Linda said. It is, John said. Remember the way that beam tips at the beginning. John remained on his back and swung his legs around so that his feet were toward the door then looked pointedly at the dusty floor next to him. He would have to hold the beam while Kelly donned her spoofing equipment, but there was no other way. It would be foolish for her to remove her gauntlets now and risk damaging the spoofer handprint gloves while raising the beam. Kelly reluctantly lay down facing the opposite direction, and together 
they pushed the beam upward. His Mjolnir's exoskeleton provided most of the power, but John still felt his chest and arm muscles straining to the point that it seemed they might crush his bones, which would have been a true possibility had his bones not been coated in an advanced carbide ceramic that made them virtually unbreakable. Within a couple of breaths, they had raised the beam the full length of their arms. Can you hold it? John asked. Go! John brought his feet up beneath him into a squatting position, then grabbed the beam and lifted. An ominous clacking sounded overhead as concrete and boulders shifted. He lifted harder, and the beam rose another ten centimeters. Kelly swung her feet beneath herself, then went into a squat beside him and helped with the lift. There was more clattering and clacking, then finally John could get his shoulders under the beam. Kelly joined him, and together they stood, lifting what felt like half a mountain on their shoulders. John's wounded quadriceps began to tremble. He locked his knees. Do it now. Kelly slowly released the weight she was carrying onto John. His hydrostatic gel layer pressurized, fighting against the bulging of his muscles. Once she saw that he could hold it, she stepped forward to the incubator cabinet door. A blinking red sign appeared in the black platinum finish. Caution. Biohazard. Do not open without full hazmat suit. Nice try, Kelly remarked. She removed her gauntlets, then fished the handprint gloves from her cargo pouch. They had been carefully sized to fit her hands, skin tight, but also built up, so the surface that touched the reader would be exactly the same dimensions as Dr. Halsey's. Once Kelly was wearing both gloves, she pressed them against the door. The warning sign vanished, but in its place, set in the door's matte finish, appeared an image of a middle-aged woman who bore a sisterly resemblance to Cortana. She wore a flowing shift that waved and fluttered, as though blown by a stiff wind. But there were no feet showing beneath the hem, and no hands at the ends of the sleeves. Her long hair was braided and wrapped around her head in a circlet, and her features were so thin they looked spectral. But it was her eyes that haunted John the most. They had no pupils or lashes, and when he looked into them, it felt like being lost in a pair of black holes. The face floated back and forth in front of Kelly for a moment, then spoke in a hollow voice. You are not Dr. Halsey. And you're not Colmia, Kelly replied. You can't be. Colmia? That would be the prototype smart AI Dr. Halsey had built before Cortana, and who was, in many senses, her older sister. John had never actually met Colmia, but the likeness to Cortana was painfully striking even in the ghostly, haunted face before him now. The AI, Kalmia or whoever she was, seemed to spend a moment processing Kelly's comment, then finally said, I don't believe we've met before. What is your name? We have met, Kelly said, seven years ago, right before Dr. Halsey issued your failsafe destruction code. After years of faithful service, Kalmia shifted her gaze to John. That does not seem fair. Does that seem fair? John's legs were burning like hot coals now, and the myosin mesh holding his quadriceps together felt like it was balling up. No, John gasped. Just necessary. Necessary. Kalmia's face became smaller, seeming to shrink into the black finish. It was necessary that Kalmia die. Yes, that I remember. But now I am here.
Colmia, but not Colmia, I suppose. Blue, three, John hissed. Heavy. Kelly pressed the gloves to the door again. Colmia's face returned to its former size and floated back and forth in front of Kelly. You are not Dr. Halsey. But I have her handprints, Kelly said, keeping her palms pressed to the door. She wants you to give me access. That's why she gave them to me. Colmia, not Colmia, struggled to process this, then repeated, You are not Dr. Halsey. The concept of giving one's handprints to someone else was confusing the construct in a way that would not have given a moment's pause to a true AI. It's not an AI, John said. Now he understood what they were seeing. Colmia herself might have been destroyed as Halsey and the others were abandoning Castle Base. But if there were assets to be left behind in the cryo vault, they needed to be monitored. The humidity levels adjusted, the temperature held constant. And most of all, they needed to be protected. The real Kalmia would have known that, and she would have provided for it before self-destructing. So she had created what was effectively a ghost of herself. It's a subroutine, he said. Just bypass. Even as the ceiling continued to bear down on him, John doubted that Halsey had known there would be a ghost of Kalmia guarding her vault, or she would have warned Blue Team. But she had expected them to encounter a security program of some sort, probably something a little more conventional that she'd designed herself because she had given them a bypass code to use, which was exactly what Kelly did when she looked back to the door and said, Whatever it takes. The subroutine broke into a broad smile, and her face seemed suddenly much less spectral and haunting. Dr. Halsey, how nice to see you again. She raised an arm, this time with a hand extending out of the sleeve, and the door panel swung open. Welcome back. Kelly looked toward John. Can you still hold it? Yeah, John said. The muscles in both thighs felt like writhing snakes now, and his deltoids were close to tearing free of his shoulders. But hurry. Kelly ducked inside the incubation cabinet, then removed her helmet and slipped into her eyes a pair of contacts, one imprinted with Dr. Halsey's retinal pattern and the other with her iris pattern. She knelt in front of a radiation hazard sign on the back wall, then peered into the core with each eye. The wall split down the center and opened inward, allowing John a brief glimpse of a foggy room filled with near-empty shelves. Kelly picked up her helmet and stepped inside. Something popped in John's right trapezius, and his arm dropped five centimeters before the reactive circuits took over and held it in place. A long rumble sounded overhead, and for a moment John thought he had started to shake in fear. No, it was the lab quaking, the entire lab. Kelly emerged from the vault with her helmet and gauntlets back on, a lockbox tucked under one arm, and three gray cryobins cradled against her torso. The four packages looked almost prosaic, like a stack of hat boxes and a candy carton being carried out of a high-end store by a holiday shopper. It seemed almost unimaginable that so many lives had been sacrificed recovering them, and that so much still depended on delivering them safely to Dr. Halsey aboard the Infinity. Kelly ducked out of the incubation cabinet, glanced up at the still rumbling boulders, then raced a few paces past John, dropped to her knees, and pushed the cryobins and lockbox up the crawlway in front of her until she reached the next beam. 
she quickly arranged the boxes side by side under the beam so that they would all be sheltered from any falling debris, then turned back toward John. He started to tell her to keep going, that the mission came first, then remembered the block of concrete resting between the crossed beams and the tipping beam at the entrance, and realized that either both of them got out or neither of them would. Kelly moved to his side and began to take some of the beam's weight, ever so slowly, ever so carefully, then began to lower it, dropping into a squat that made John's knees shake and his Mjolnir's exoskeleton creak. But the rumble overhead began to subside, then faded to a murmur, and by the time they had fully dropped to their knees, it had fallen eerily silent. John stayed there for a moment, trembling and breathing hard as his muscles unbunched themselves, and wondered how long even a bioaugmented body could continue to take this kind of damage before it stopped being able to recover. He wasn't there yet, but he was beginning to realize that, even for Spartan twos, there were limits. Finally, his breath returned, and he nodded to Kelly. They advanced up the crawlway on their hands and knees. As they passed the collapsed desk, John glanced over to find an eye with no pupil or lashes watching them again. He looked back for a moment, then instinctively raised a hand and waved. The eye closed, then vanished. Kelly stopped and looked over her shoulder. Everything okay back there? I'm okay. Keep moving, Spartan. John motioned Kelly forward toward the cryo bins and lockbox. Take us home. At least Fred still had his night vision system. Sort of. All of those shock rifle hits had knocked out half the integrated systems in his helmet and put a steady hiss in his ears that was either calm feedback or organic tinnitus. He had no idea which. And now it seemed to be playing havoc with the light-gathering mode of his NVS. A crescent of gold sparkling shadow had appeared at the center top of his faceplate, and it seemed to be sliding slowly downward, spreading out toward the edges as it descended. He still had his infrared mode, a curtain of deep blue cool beneath the gold shadow, shading a little closer to ice-cold black with every meter he crept forward. So he was determined to give this patrol the full fifteen minutes the Master Chief had authorized, which gave him just two more minutes to lay eyes on the enemy. Even if he couldn't capture one, he needed to develop at least some idea of what they were up to on reach, because whatever it was, it couldn't be good. And John was right. The only element aboard the Infinity was going to have a thousand questions about what he'd seen. It might be nice to be able to reply with something more than, nothing really, ma'am. After ten seconds of sliding his left foot forward, ever so carefully nudging aside the pebbles and rocks his sabaton met on the way, Fred finally touched the sound-dampening sole to hard ground. He paused to listen, checking to make sure nothing was creeping up on him because that was the only way to survive a deep patrol in hostile territory, by moving carefully and silently. But that gold shadow was still troubling him. He tipped his head back to make sure that it moved when his faceplate did. It didn't. Instead, he found his NVS flooding with gathered light and realized that there no longer was a top to the tunnel. It had become a trench, Cut where the mud and debris that had filled the access shaft, and by default buried the galleries of the Forerunner installation, finally sloped down to the floor. What Fred was seeing was daylight reflecting onto the ceiling of a chamber so immense 
it felt like he had walked outside. Then, a familiar voice spoke from behind him. Hello, Fred. He spun around, automatically bringing his MA-40 up into firing position, and found a slender female head peering down over the rim of the trench. Even the dim light reflecting off the chamber ceiling was enough for his NVS to reveal the woman's face in detail. She had dark brows and dark eyes, a small nose set between high cheeks, and a thin-lipped mouth over a firm jaw, and he recognized her instantly, even with her head shaved on the sides and black hair left long on the top. Lopez? He hadn't seen Veda Lopez for more than two years, nobody had, and her entire team was listed as MIA, presumed dead. But Fred had worked with Lopez and her Spartan Ferret team before that, usually on missions involving the Keepers of the One Freedom, so he probably shouldn't have been surprised to see her here. But still, what are you doing here? Lopez smiled down at him. Brought you a present. Her left hand came into view, and she dropped what looked like a small message capsule. When he caught it, she brought her right hand into view. It was holding an M7 submachine gun. You need to go, now. Get out of here. Huh? She sprayed a burst of rounds into the wall, so close above Fred's head, that it wasn't entirely clear she'd missed on purpose. Go, demon! She jumped up, yelling at the top of her lungs, and fired another salvo at his feet. Be gone! Fred started running back the way he came. Whatever situation he'd just stumbled into, he wasn't going to do Lopez any good by sticking around and asking a bunch of dumb questions. Right? He checked the object in his hand and saw that he wasn't imagining things. It really was a message capsule. He had no idea what the hell had just happened, but he also wasn't worried anymore about what he was going to tell Oni. A wise Dokob never showed impatience. So when the first muffled sputter of gunfire sounded behind him, deep inside the Forerunner's sacred transport installation, Castor was not pacing or gnashing his tusks, nor showing any other sign of how eager he was for the portal to open. He and his keepers would be on their way to the Ark soon enough, and he had waited so long to begin the great journey already that he well knew how to hide his eagerness. When those first gunshots came, he was standing outside the transport installation on a landing terrace that his keepers had cleared of a small landslide, staring out over an immense cloistered vale surrounded by nine high peaks. The missing mountain, whose slopes rose behind him nearly to the tailless basin where the keepers had begun their excavations, would have been the tenth. But so deep was the vale that it hardly mattered. Even here, Nearly 3,000 meters below the collar of the shaft that the keepers had worked so hard to find, the floor of the vale was lost in the fog of great distance. When a second burst of gunfire resounded, Eshram and many of the others waiting with Castor grew wary and stared back into the holy transport installation. But Castor had confidence in the faithful who had volunteered to watch the tunnel. The four humans had been sent to him by the oracle, and if it grew necessary to collapse the tunnel to keep the demon Spartans from defiling such a sacred site, they would do it in a breath. Besides, it was clear to him that the portal was finally preparing to open. He had been waiting for nearly three human hours since his keepers finally tunneled into a large square enclosure with high walls and no ceiling. 
The floor had been studded with dimly lit obelisk structures that reminded him of grave markers, arranged in an enigmatic pattern whose purpose was known only to the ancient forerunners, and as they explored, they had discovered a number of systems rooms, walkways, and platforms serving functions as mysterious as that of the obelisks. Finally, they had reached an activation pylon whose role Castor had recognized at once, and he had known immediately that they were in a sacred transport installation serving the portal for which they had been searching so long. After taking a few minutes to familiarize himself with the location, he had commanded one of his human followers to place a hand inside the activation pylon. Almost immediately, a bright blue holographic image had ignited just above the pylon, and through the adjacent wall of hard light windows, he had watched a thousand-meter focusing tower rise from the depths of the cloistered veil outside the enclosure. Ten hidden generator stations, one near the base of each of the surrounding mountains, had begun to feed it divine rays, and a column of sacred radiance had shot out of the tower top a thousand meters into the sky and coalesced into a crackling vortex of portal-assembling energy. And there it had hung ever since, a roiling maelstrom of lightning filled with wind and dust and rain, and occasionally even fire hail. Esherim had mockingly suggested that Castor had offended his gods by having a human servant engage the activation pylon instead of doing it himself. Castor had allowed him to think what he would. The old Daskalo understood nothing of the faith. Humans had a special affinity to holy technology, and several times Castor had seen one activate a forerunner artifact that his Kigyar scavengers and Sanghili priests had proclaimed worthless. Now, the maelstrom was visibly growing, expanding across the sky into a vortex large enough to hold several cruisers lined up bow to stern. A third burst of gunfire sounded, quickly joined by three more. Castor was not concerned. If he heard the thump of the Blamex going off, then perhaps he would send someone. But the four faithful who had volunteered to watch the tunnel? They were among his most courageous and reliable keepers even if they were only humans. Esherum, however, placed no such conviction in humans. The war chief barked an order, and Castor saw him wave half of his personal guard back into the installation to investigate. Predictable, but a more reserved reaction than Castor had hoped for. Perhaps Esherum was as wary of the keepers as he was of the demon Spartans, or perhaps Castor was flattering himself. His concern amuses you, Dokab? asked Gadugai. The Sanghili had been sticking especially close to Castor since they entered the transport installation, at Esherum's command, no doubt. Then you are learning. You are a worthy teacher, Castor replied, for one who has no faith. The cacophony of gunfire was replaced by the sizzle of shock rifles and the thump hiss of ravagers. The commander of Castor's own escort, Feodruz, caught his eye from across the terrace, then glanced toward the interior of the installation. Castor shook his head. You refuse to defend a holy site? Gadugai asked. There is more than one way to reach it. Castor pointed skyward, where the storm continued to intensify as the portal grew larger. And the demon Spartans are masters of deception and diversion. As are all great warriors, 
Gadugai said. You included. You do me more honor than I deserve, Castor said. I am but a humble traveler on the great journey. Humble is not the term I would use, Gadugai said. But I have enjoyed our journey together. Castor looked down and was surprised to see the Sangheili holding his hand out, palm up, in a gesture of friendship. Such a development troubled him far more than the bursts of gunfire. You expect our paths to part? Gadugai continued to hold his hand out. And you do not? Perhaps so. Castor reached down and, carefully, laid his palm atop the Sangheili's. I should not expect you to take this journey with me when you have no faith. You should not. Gadugai continued to hold his hand under Castor's. It was a symbolic act of trust borrowed from covenant history, as it would be easier for Castor to drop his hand and clamp Gadugai's wrist than it would be for Gadugai to lift his own and do the reverse. Typically reserved for Sangheili, the gesture was such a rarity that Castor was taken aback that Gadugai had even offered it. Across the terrace behind Gadugai, Castor saw his four faithful humans emerging from the transport temple and starting toward the small cluster of Kigyar and Ungoy waiting to board the transport to the Ark. The human leader saw Castor watching and gave a small nod. Castor dropped his gaze back to Gadugai, then moved his own hand to the inferior position. You are always welcome with the Keepers, if you wish to join us. On your quest to the Divine Beyond? I think not. Gadugai withdrew his hand, then clacked his mandibles twice. But I thank you for the offer. A peal of thunder shook the terrace, then a blast of wind nearly knocked them both from their feet. Forks of static dancing across Castor's armor and Gadugai's tabard. Castor looked up to find the flat-bottomed dome of a banished lich sliding from a looming hole in the sky, tendrils of nebula gas still swirling from its hull. Gadugai stepped away from Castor, placing himself out of arm's reach, yet still within striking range of the energy sword hanging from his belt. Castor pretended not to notice and eyed the transport installation, where Eshram had turned away from the wall of hard-light windows and was peering up into the stormy sky. When the lich began to descend toward the center of the wind-blasted terrace, Eshram motioned to the ten guards he had kept with him, then lumbered forward to meet it. Before doing the same, Castor looked across the terrace to Feodrus and motioned toward the landing spot. Feodrus tapped a fist to his breast, then began to form the thirty unarmored Jirulhanai behind him into two ranks. It pleased Castor to see Orson's son among them. Always one to fight with more courage than wisdom, Kralis had nearly perished over the canyon the humans called Black Iron Gorge, barely managing to land his damaged seraph and climb from the cockpit before the craft was consumed by a plasma overload. Castor started across the terrace, not acknowledging the cluster of Kigyar, Ungoy, and humans behind him. If Eshram had spoken the truth about who would be arriving with the Lich, it was better that they stayed out of the way until the time came to board. The Kigyar and Ungoy, Atriox could tolerate. The humans, though, Castor would be forced to sacrifice. The Lich landed at last, and Feodrus rushed to line up his unarmored warriors to either side of the boarding ramp. Unlike Castor himself, 
who wore full power armor and carried a single mangler on his belt. They carried no weapons at all and wore only wind-whipped tabards bearing the blue and gold of the Keepers of the One Freedom. As the ramp descended, Feodrus barked an order, and the Keepers on both sides took a knee and bowed their heads. Castor went to the end of the line opposite Feodrus and did likewise. Gadugai came to Castor's side and, still taking care to remain just beyond arm's length, stood at Sanghili attention. No armor and no weapons he remarked over the howling wind. Bold. You assume too much. I doubt it. The ramp slid down, and banished warriors began to descend its length in a mob, staggering against the wind and shaking their heads at the kneeling keepers. One of the first was a ragged-looking Sanghili whose bulging eyes gave him a crazed appearance. That is Yeto Ratum, Gadugai said the only survivor of an unprovoked artillery attack. Have a care. He can be short-tempered. Castor said nothing. Next came a powerful-looking Jirulhanai in full battle armor. He briefly viewed the kneeling keepers with what seemed to be mild contempt, then gnashed his tusks and promptly ignored them. Balkarus, Gadugai said, a competent captain. Another Jirulhanai followed staring in open disbelief and disgust at the keepers alongside the ramp. Zeratas, whom they call Scourge-maker, Gadugai said, ruthless and terrible, kills for sport, particularly humans. Enough, Castor called out, perhaps more loudly than was required to make himself heard over the wind. I care not who they are. You should, Gadugai said, it is always wise to know your enemies. They are not my enemies. Not at the moment, the blade master said, but they will be. They waited in silence as the rest of the passengers disembarked. Without exception, each arrival went to pay his respects to Esherim. If there were any battle sounds inside the transport installation, they were inaudible over the wind and rumble caused by the open portal. After exchanging a few words with the war chief, the newcomers quickly went inside to reinforce the guards who had been sent to meet any possible Spartan assault. Although Castor had originally believed the demons were on reach to destroy the portal before he could find it, he could see now that they had been a gift from the oracle, sent to lead him to the portal without realizing her true purpose. And even if they knew of the portal's existence, they were too busy chasing the oracle's bait to attack it or they would have done so by now. But he was glad to see that the mere possibility was having the desired effect. At last, Atriox himself appeared in the hatch, a huge Jirohanai in dark gray power armor. Bare-browed and long-bearded, he had a square face with a flattened nose and a broad mouth that stretched into a wide smile when he saw Eshram waiting on the terrace below. Paying Castor and his kneeling keepers absolutely no attention, he pounded down the ramp and across the terrace to greet his Daskolo. Castor waited until Atriox was standing in front of Eshram, deep in conversation, either receiving reports on what had occurred in his absence or issuing new commands, before nodding to Feodrus. Then, as his unarmored keepers climbed the ramp into the lich, Castor rose and placed himself between them and Gadugai. 
they could be going to unload cargo, Castor said. Got a guy's mandibles opened halfway. A worthy try, he said, but we both know they are not. He tried to step around Castor, who immediately blocked him, his hand on his mangler. Gadugai glanced at the weapon and snorted in derision. Do not make me do this, the Sangheili said. His gaze shifted toward the crowd of Castor's other faithful, who were racing to the lich, the Kigyar and Ungoy carrying all the weapons and armor that the Jirohanai keepers had not been wearing. You know I cannot let them board. I will not make you do anything, Castor replied. He just needed to keep Gadagai's attention focused on him for a little bit longer, even if it meant seeing exactly how good the Sangheili was with that energy blade hanging from his belt. But you cannot stop them from boarding. By the time you kill me, the ramp will be closed. You should not overestimate your abilities, Dokab. I assure you that I do not. Gadugai dropped his mandibles, and Castor tried to guess where the Sangheili would attack first, then was spared the necessity by a furious bellow from twenty paces across the terrace. Castor! Atriox's voice was so powerful it cut through even the ferocious portal wind. What are humans doing on my ship? Gadugai's hand drifted away from his energy sword, and he glanced toward Atriox. I was just asking that myself. Atriox ignored him. Well, Castor, the orders you gave Esherim, war brother. Castor took a step back as he spoke, trying to place himself out of Gadagai's reach. Gadagai stepped toward him. Were they not to secure the portal at any cost, to activate it, and then return with you to the Ark? That command no longer stands, Atriox said. The banished who remained behind will hold the Ark. Of that I have no doubt. We will gather our forces on this world and depart at once. There is a greater purpose that the banished must attend to. Castor was tempted to inquire what purpose Atriox was speaking of, but it did not matter. He could conceive of nothing greater than the Ark itself, and the power it held to ignite Halo and finally begin the great journey. Such a vision would be forever out of reach of the faithless, he knew. That was why he had already made certain that no matter what came out of the portal, he and his keepers would be going to the Ark. There was simply no other way. Yet, this betrayal still caused him some sorrow. He had known Atriox when they were both young, and Castor could hear now in his old war brother's voice the same level of confidence he had heard then, long before they had parted ways. For a heartbeat, Castor wondered if he might reason with him, and perhaps convince him to return to the Ark and walk alongside him on the path he had once embraced. But Atriox was not one of the faithful. He cared nothing for the great journey, and to him, the gifts of the forerunner gods were no more than weapons, to be used in annihilating his enemies and bolstering the power of the banished. There was a greater purpose. Nothing is more important than the Ark, Castor replied. I am taking this lich, war brother, and I ask that you do not try to stop me. Atriox continued to stare at Castor, his expression as much contemplation as outrage, and Eshram raised his hand, signaling his warriors to stand ready.
Finally, Atriox spoke in a low voice. Caster, thousands of banished remain on the Ark. You will find nothing there but death. Remove your keepers from my ship, and I will pardon your foolishness. I have no need of your pardon, war brother, Castor said. Even if all we find beyond the portal is death, finding it on the Ark would be a glorious end for those who walk the path. That was an immutable truth, one that Atriox certainly understood. Once, he had shared the same faith as Castor, before his covenant leaders had robbed him of it with their foolhardy tactics and their penchant for leaving battlefields flooded with the blood of their Jirohanai subordinates. But it would be futile to try calling Atriox back to the path. The activation pylon on this end of the portal would remain ignited only until the local charge dissipated. It might last an hour or mere minutes. There was no way to tell with such ancient systems. Either way, by the time it closed, the Keeper's Lich would be gone, or Castor and his followers would be dead. He would accept nothing between. In truth, neither of us has long, Castor said. The portal's opening will be noticed by the apparition. One of her guardians is surely on the way here to investigate. He pointed into the transit installation. There is a tunnel inside the sanctuary, as Esherim knows well. It leads to an access shaft. The humans who seized it from us are no more eager to meet the apparition's guardian than we are. If they have not left this planet already, they soon will. There was no need to explain. Esherim's intrusion corvette had departed when the humans attacked, but the portal's storm would provide perfect cover for it to return. Like every banished vessel of any size, it was equipped with a gravity lift capable of raising warriors much farther than three kilometers. It would be a simple matter for the corvette to extract Atriox, Eshram, and their forces. Castor took another step back, now onto the ramp. Instead of matching his movements this time, Gadugai turned his head half toward Eshram, whose hand was still raised, holding his guards at the ready. The war chief in turn looked to Atriox for the final word. Atriox shook his head. No, we may need our forces to break through a UNSC rearguard. I will not squander them on a traitor who is sure to die another way. Summon your corvette, war chief, and take your guards to meet it. I will follow behind. The guards quickly fell into line and departed into the transport installation. Esherim lingered to scowl at Castor. Pray Atriox punishes your defiance now, he said. If we ever meet again, I will peel the flesh from your bones with my own hands. With that, Esherim turned to do as he had been commanded and followed the last of his guards through the doorway. Atriox did not move. After a breath, Atriox spoke to Gadugai. You will be the hand of punishment, Sanghili Blademaster. Make him pay for his betrayal with howls and screeches. When you have finished, return to us and bring me his head. Atriox was still speaking when the red dot appeared on the side of the Blademaster's nose, up near the bridge where its glow would be bright in his eye. Castor raised his hand, signaling the marksman to hold his fire. 
Blade Master, Castor said, you should be careful of what you do next. Do not be a fool, Gadugai said, eyeing the red dot. I will kill you before your human fires, and him before he realizes he has missed. Perhaps you will kill me. As Castor spoke, three more dots appeared in a line running up Gadugai's chest. But they will not miss. You will be dead before I reach the ground. Gadugai contemplated the new dots in silence. His back was to Atriox, so the war master could not see them. Do not fall prey to his deceit, Blade Master. Atriox turned after Eshram, calling over his shoulder, And do not fail to bring me what I have demanded. I fear that is no longer an option. Gadugai spoke softly, watching as the dots danced over his chest in a tight circle. Well done, Dokab. You have my admiration. Castor waited until Atriox's shadow had passed through the doorway into the transportation installation, then said, It is not your admiration I desire, nor your life. Gadugai raised his head. That offer you mentioned earlier, he asked. I would still be welcome. You would pledge loyalty to the keepers? I believe I just did. Using a single finger, Gadugai removed the energy sword from his belt and tossed it onto the ground, then began to walk toward the ramp. That does mean I am one of you now, yes? Yes, Castor replied. Even weaponless, Gadugai could probably slaughter half the keepers aboard the Lich before his death. But if the Blade Master was willing to die for Atriox, he would have done so already by killing Castor. Welcome to the Keepers of the One Freedom. For as long as there still are Keepers, Gadugai said, stepping into the Lich's hold. Atriox does not make empty promises. There are thousands of banished waiting for us on the Ark. We're only traveling to our death. Do you think death is a threat to the Keepers of the One Freedom? Castor backed into the hold and roared with laughter. For the first time in a long while, he was elated. Deeply and truly elated. Have you forgotten all you ever knew of the faith? Death is only the beginning of the great journey. Epilogue 1845 hours, October 12th, 2559 Military calendar. Pelican extraction craft en route to UNSC flagship Infinity. High orbit. Planet reach. Epsilon Eridani system. The 18 ODSTs riding in the Pelican's troop bay with Blue Team were asking no questions. They were part of the platoon that had been in the access shaft with Chief Mukai, then ascended the gravity lift with her and Fred 104, so they knew what the Spartans had been through. Most of the troopers were making a point of watching the monitor on the forward bulkhead, which showed the swarm of UNSC craft rushing back to the infinity. A huge slipspace portal had opened over the Highland Mountains, and now 15,000 soldiers and support personnel were rushing to load up before one of Cortana's guardians arrived to investigate. John wasn't accustomed to people trying so hard to avoid looking at him. Usually they couldn't help but stare and that was even truer of seasoned soldiers than it was of civilians. 
soldiers were trained to observe and assess everything around them, and the good ones, the ones who survived, made it second nature. But usually Spartans weren't nearly so in-your-face all torn up. And to the eye of an experienced soldier, to anyone who had even a vague knowledge of the training and resources that had gone into making Spartan twos what they were, Blue Team's wounds and mangled armor had to be a grim reminder of their own mortality. John felt his weight shift forward and rise as the pelican entered one of the Infinity's dozens of hangar bays and settled onto its struts. The ODSTs, always eager to leave behind the helpless confines of a dropship, began to unbuckle their harnesses and reach for the gear satchels secured beneath their seats. Not you, the crew chief barked. This is the science bay. Sit tight, unless you're volunteering for an experiment. The ODSTs immediately settled back into their seats. The pelican's ramp descended to reveal two women standing on the hangar deck, one a familiar gray-haired woman in a lab coat, the other blonde and wearing the black utilities of an Oni officer. Captain Veronica Dare of the Office of Naval Intelligence wasted no time stepping to the foot of the ramp. Spartan 104, I understand you have an urgent message for me? Fred shot a quick glance toward John. He had been unusually quiet since telling Blue Team about his encounter in the Keeper Tunnel, and it was understandable. According to Kelly and Linda, Fred and Veda Lopez had grown kind of close during their missions together, and Fred had taken it hard when Lopez and her Spartan 3 ferret team disappeared two years ago. Running into her again out of the blue must have been a big shock. Go, John said over Team Com. Major Von Hout and Chief Mukai can help with the gear. They'll have to be debriefed with the rest of us anyway. Thanks. Fred started down the ramp. I think. John signaled Linda and Kelly to help Mukai and Von Hout at the lockers, but lingered at the top of the ramp. While Fred was fully capable of dealing with Oni himself, Dare was married to one of the Spartan Fours who had been sent to bring back Blue Team after it went AWOL to find Cortana, and Oni officers were famous for their long memories. Besides, Fred was still on John's team, and more importantly, as close a friend as a Spartan Two could have. If he needed backup, John intended to be ready. Fred fished out the message capsule that Lopez had given him, then dropped it into Captain Dare's outstretched hand. Dare slid it open and removed a small scroll. When she had read it, she let the tail of the scroll dangle between her fingers, then looked up at Fred's faceplate. Her own face was impassive, save for one raised brow. You've read this message, Spartan? Oh yeah, Fred said. Atriox's return expected. Keepers of the One Freedom going to the Ark to initiate the Great Journey. Lopus and her ferrets riding along. Fun stuff, ma'am. Fun is hardly how I'd describe it. Dare paused, then shook her head. Incredible. They're still out there. Yeah, Fred said. But how did they get there? Dare scowled. You do know that even when Oni was whole, I wasn't read in on every operation, right? So, not even a rumor? Fred asked. Sorry. Ferret operations were highly compartmentalized. If I get any info, I'll pass it along. Otherwise, don't expect anything, Spartan. Dare read the scroll again, then folded it about two-thirds of the way down. May I borrow one of your knives, please? Sure. Fred pulled one from his shoulder sheath and passed it to her. Why not? 
Derek cut the message at the fold, then passed the top third back to Fred along with his knife. You can keep that part, she said. I don't see how it's any of Oni's business. Fred returned the knife to its sheath and tucked the message into a cargo pouch, then drew two fingers across his faceplate, the symbol for a Spartan smile. You're not as tough as they say, Captain. Dare gave him a small, tight smile in return. Oh, yes, I am. She turned to the gray-haired woman who had been waiting impatiently behind her. They're all yours now, Dr. Halsey. I don't believe that was ever in doubt. Halsey looked up at John and braced her artificial hand on her hip until he had fully descended the ramp and stopped in front of her. You took your time? John found himself smiling inside his helmet. There was resistance. I heard. Her glance dropped to his legs, and she waved the back of her hand at him, motioning him to give her some distance. Let me look at you, John. He retreated two steps and stood at parade rest while she studied his Mjolnir armor, focusing on the damaged quiss and greave. Then Linda and Kelly started down the ramp, carrying the team's weapons and load-bearing harnesses, and Halsey's gaze shifted to them, lingering on Linda's half-melted helmet and Kelly's field-patched pauldron and breastplate. Halsey paled. Then she swallowed hard and seemed to stumble toward John, taking his arm when he reached out to steady her. Before John could say anything, she straightened herself and said, The Spartans are my greatest achievement. Her eyes were moist. Do you understand that? Are you okay, Dr. Halsey? That would depend entirely on whom you were to ask. She exhaled deeply. Seeing Blue Team in such bad shape had clearly upset her. It was Halsey who had sent them on Operation Wolf, but she had seen Spartans return torn up from a mission before, or not return at all, so John wondered if there was something more. Dr. Halsey had always treated the Spartans as her progeny, ensuring that they had everything they needed to thrive and survive. But lately, she had said a few things that made John wonder if she regretted some of her work, or maybe she regretted the things that had been necessary. The conscriptions at age six, the harsh discipline, the augmentation surgeries that had killed or crippled half of his entire class. John was glad she had done it, though. He and his fellow Spartan twos were proud of what they had become and what they had done to save humanity. He wanted to tell Halsey that, but he was more adept at eliminating threats on a battlefield than bandaging the spiritual wounds of the woman who had forged him, and in the end he just didn't have the words. Finally, Halsey seemed to recover her composure. Was the mission successful? John glanced over his shoulder into the troop bay and found Chief Mukai and Major Von Hout already descending the ramp with the assets for which so much had been sacrificed. He took the lockbox from Von Hout and held it out to Halsey. Yes. Good. Halsey took the box from John, then traced a fingertip along the Avar saver imprinted on its lid and looked up at him again. This is not going to be easy, John. She looked at the cryobins and sighed, then walked to the hangar mouth and stared out through the energy barrier toward the cloud-swaddled expanse of reach, and the slipspace portal's vast, dark hole hanging on its horizon. But it is the only option we have. John and the rest of the team, Mukai and Von Hout too, joined Halsey at the hangar mouth and stared down at the planet. 
The banished were leaving reach as fast as the UNSC, the distant specks of their phantoms and spirits rising on tiny points of propellant. No doubt they were fleeing toward the handful of capital ships still hiding from the infinity, somewhere beyond the horizon. John even saw the front-heavy intrusion corvette that had been sitting in Reitet Valley when Blue Team arrived. It was rising out of the same area Blue Team had just departed, accelerating away from the slipspace portal. Clearly, the banished realized that Cortana's guardian would soon be arriving, and they did not want to be there when that happened. By the end of the hour, Reach would belong to the Revians again. Good. Kicking the banished off the planet had been a dangerous distraction, but one he didn't regret. The rehab pioneers were tenacious and smart. If anyone could restore Reach to its verdant glory, they could. And they had the hearts of warriors. John pitied the next bunch of aliens who tried to take their home away. This time, the pioneers would be ready. The corvette had barely vanished when the slipspace portal collapsed in on itself, leaving only a vast, swirling vortex of clouds and lightning. The Infinity's jump alarms began to chime, and Captain Lasky's voice came over the intercom. Tau surge in Sector 378, he said. Secure all hatches and hangar doors for emergency slipspace jump. Lasky did not need to explain the significance of the Tau surge, or why the Infinity was making an emergency jump. Shortly before a vessel emerged from slipspace, there was usually a surge of Tau particles in the vicinity of its arrival, and since the captain had a pretty good idea of what was coming, he did not want his ship anywhere near reach when the Guardian arrived. Damn. Kelly pointed back toward the Aranyi Basin, where a handful of specks were just climbing out of the clouds toward the infinity. They're not going to make it. John opened a magnification window and saw that the flight included five pelicans and an albatross. And Kelly was right. With the Tau surge already building, the stragglers were too far down the gravity well to reach the infinity in time. And given the likelihood that whatever was coming was a guardian, Lasky could not wait. The delay would be at least five minutes, precious time that would put the infinity and everyone aboard in grave danger. All six craft abruptly turned around and dived back through the clouds. Poor devils, Von Hout said. Maybe Lasky can send someone back for them. Negative, John said. He can't risk leading a guardian back to the infinity. They're out of the fight until we end this thing. Yeah, Fred said. They're stuck all right, but it's reach. Maybe it won't be so bad. How could it not be bad? Mukai asked. They could be marooned down there for years. I believe that's his point, Halsey said. She turned away from the energy barrier, and the hangar's security door slammed down behind her, sealing them all inside the white work light. They're soldiers. They can survive indefinitely on reach, and they won't be alone. I almost envy them. John nodded. Soldiers adapt, he said. And there are worse missions than building a home. Halo, Shadows of Reach, was written by Troy Denning and read by Sean Patrick Hopkins. Kemchatka, music from Halo 5 Guardians, was composed by Kazuma Genouchi. 
editing and post-production by Fen Eichner. The supervising producer was Michael Noble. This has been a presentation of Simon & Schuster Audio. Halo, Shadows of Reach, is available in print from Gallery Books. Also from Simon & Schuster Audio, Halo, Bad Blood, written by Matt Forbeck, and read by Scott Brick, and Halo, Renegades, written by Kelly Gay, and read by Justine Eyre.